Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. As always, I am Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? I'm great. Good. Uh, I just I'm I'm I feel a lot less manic. That's nice to hear. Than last week. <laughs> last week was I was I was very rushed. I was feeling like I wasn't prepared. I came in very last minute, right. giving you info. I and so this week. I just, I, I feel like it was at a slower pace. I gave you the stuff early because I was ready to go. And so my day's been a lot more relaxed. So I wasn't racing around the last couple hours trying to like quickly get it done to act like I was done. I was actually done. So I'm, uh, I'm feeling really chill. And so I don't know if the vodka is going to hit right or not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you never know. Well, it's like rolling the dice to right? that. Ah, there she goes. There she goes. This is a high noon. It's a lime high noon. That's a vodka soda drink. I've drank these on the show before. Again, dry January is over. So I'm glad to be with you. I like that we're both in this this chill vibe. Although I got to say, I'm chill, but I'm also excited because I'm excited about this case. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm excited about it. I have had some it's funny because I haven't been working this week but that doesn't always necessarily mean I have time off because my job is weird and it requires 
lots of time doing things on what would supposedly be days off, but I have had a couple of days. And so I was able to like prep for this and that's exciting for me. So I'm like, I'm ready to go. Like I, I'm like a, I'm just like a, I'm a boxer. You know what I mean? Like I'm a boxer in the corner and I've, I've touched gloves with the case and I'm ready to just beat the shit out of it. (laughs) I've lost my mind so quickly. Every, every single time. And you and I talk about this privately a lot is when you get really excited about something, you always describe yourself a different way. Like before it was like, you're like a child stirring the batter. Yeah. And like at earlier, you told me you're just a, a little horse that wants to know when to run. <laughs> yep. And now you're like a boxer. Yeah. I love this so much. You're just so excited I am. that you're glowing. You're glowing. Oh, stop. It's the it's the ring light. I kid. It, I am glowing. I'm very <laughs> excited. I'm excited to be here. Yes. I'm always excited to be here, but I'm, I'm oh, you know. Oh, of course. What you drinking over there? You said something about vodka. Yeah, I like vodka. Um, I just, I put it with like a a nice just regular fresca and like a little cran cherry and of course some lime. Not any of that fresh lime like you lucky bitches. I, I had to pour it out of a bottle and that's fine. I'll look into, summer's coming. Yeah, it's not. It's never going to get here. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Christy, you for, for those yeah. who, who need a reminder, Christy is, of course, in the dead of winter up in Saskatchewan, Canada yeah. right now. And for those who maybe aren't familiar, mm-hmm. is she's getting into the, the place that we do in Canada where it starts to feel hopeless that you'll ever yes. see the sun again. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, this week we've been in, I know, again, temperatures are different, but we've been in about... closing in on minus 50 and so school buses all week yeah and school buses will not run at anything worse than minus 40 so if you want your kids to go to school and not be around you so that you can just have five seconds of silence that means you got to get your ass out of bed and go out there and drive them like every other parent so it's like an hour to go drive them to school, which it shouldn't be because it's like a five, 10 minute drive, but it's waiting in traffic. And then you get locked in and you're waiting for people. It's a lot. But I will say this to the people in the dro- school drop off yeah. who stop in the middle of the road and block everybody else just so that they can either pick their child up or drop them off instead of pulling over to a spot like every other person. Fuck <laughs> Gloves it's are just, off. It's too much. Yeah. It's too much. I understand it's very cold, but guess what? It's the same temperature to my children. Yeah. So just pull over, find a space, and if you don't see one right away, guess what? Lucky you, around the block you go. Do a lap. It just, it happens all the time, and then sometimes they'll see them in a distance, and then they'll just stop, and it's nightmarish, because then you're just sitting there waiting for another 20 minutes and it's just it's too much so my point is just be considerate of others be nice yeah be considerate of others you're not the only ones there which if you weren't aware you could just take a look around you and you'd probably see that there's other people trying to achieve the same thing you're trying to achieve yes yeah and i'm also now just realizing that i said fuck you be nice (laughs) 
listen, not desperate you times. Know, you know what I meant. Of course, of course. This relaxed is getting a little enraged quickly, so I don't know what's going to happen tonight. I was just about to say, I love that you started this by saying you were chill, and you've in the first five <laughs> minutes you've told someone to fuck off, which is a record on this show, I will say. I don't know that you've ever told, I don't think I've ever heard you tell anyone to fuck off on this show. I love it. I'm here for it. Oh, yeah. I'm just, I... It's it borders on the manic. It's when I start getting intense and it's like, oh, fuck. Now my hands are really warm. So I don't even know what that means or if that's connected. It's probably the vodka. The point is I started off chill, but I can already say two minutes later, I'm not chill anymore. <laughs> listen, short lived. We're going on a journey and that's that's why that's why people listen to this show. We take them on a journey, yeah. both, you know, emotionally, literally and figuratively. Now, of course, today's episode is, of course, discussing the case of Elisa Lamb. Obviously, there is a very popular Netflix documentary that just came out this week called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Uh, we got a lot of requests to cover Elisa Lamb over the past, since this, yeah. basically since we started doing this back in October. And then we heard about this documentary coming out, so that's why we had waited until now, because we wanted to obviously see this documentary and then address it right away. So we were both very excited that it was four parts. You binged it the day of yeah. that it came out, and I binged it yesterday. Yeah. So we are both, we're both up to date, which is exciting. Again, I just, I'm like, I'm in the know. I'm in the know. Do you know what I mean? I think sometimes yeah. when we do the show, just because of my schedule and, and, and everything, it's like sometimes I feel like I come in and I'm I'm not in the know. And right now I feel like I'm in the I'm in the room. I'm in the room where it happened. OK, that's a Hamilton. At- it's a Hamilton reference. It's fine. It's fine. OK, yeah, fine. you know, I don't get that. I feel like you're at the grown up table. Yeah. For the first time. Whereas no- normally you're at the kitty table and I'm just like, do you want some cake? You know, there's cake. Mm-hmm. Whereas now you're at the adult table and you're like, you know, there's fucking cake. Yeah. I know that there's cake here. I can see the cake and I'm going to oh, eat the fucking God. cake. You know what I mean? A nice red velvet. Why already? Last week it was fries. <laughs> this week it's cake. I love it. Oh, but but once I have this the, enough sweet, I hit a certain level and then I'm like, oof, now I need a salt. Yeah. I need that balance. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, with drinking this, I can't do cake. Oh, it's got to be salt. Sugar on sugar is just never the way. It's just, it's too much. Yeah. You got to, it's all about balance. Thank you very much. Yeah. I will also say I did watch two other documentaries. Yes. Because I wanted to try and get an understanding because I know that uh, Elisa Lamb was diagnosed bipolar. Yes. And I don't really know anything about it. So I was like, you know what? Are there any documentaries? I also did some research looking into it, but I'm like, are there documentaries that I can learn about it? There are many, but I chose specifically two. One I recommend and one I don't. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. There's one called Ride the Tiger, a guide through the bipolar brain. Pro. Oh. It's it's narrated by David Ogden Steers. And people might not know him, but he was on MASH. Oh, okay. Which I loved. And he voiced the villain in Pocahontas, which is one of my favorite Disney's. The the con of that documentary, just some just some light animal testing, oh. like to the point where you get to see like they keep showing this tiny thing in a petri dish, and then you find out when they zoom in, oh, it's a mouse brain. 
So it's like, no, I'm good. No. So I I didn't overly care for that one. But the one that I felt, uh, what I, I felt it was informative. It was an emotional ride. Stephen Fry, The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive. Some may not know Stephen Fry is a well-known British actor. Yeah. And I adore him. And I always find him to be a good time. And so I was like, I am very interested in this. And I felt like he handled it all in a very classy way. And you learn something and you have a couple laughs and then suddenly you're just plunged into sadness. Oh, jeez. So it, it was quite the uh, ride. He also had... Uh, he had Carrie Fisher on there briefly, mm. her explaining what it's like when she goes through a manic episode, and it was terrifying and exhausting. So yeah, well, I, she was it, very open yeah. with her with her mental struggles and as well right. as uh, her addictions and all of those kinds of things, which I always thought was so great that she was so candid about all of those things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, listen, kudos to you. I think it's great, obviously, learning about those things, uh, about anything in general. But certainly, I know that bipolar is something that has come up in in episodes before. And so, good on you. Good on you for looking into it. I just, I need to, I need to do my homework. Yeah. I feel like there is a bar set very high. I had set it high for myself when we started the show. Yeah. And it gets knocked up a little bit every week, which is lovely and beautiful. But then there are moments where I'm like, oh, have I done enough? So this time I'm like, oh, watching one four-hour documentary doesn't seem enough. (laughs) To be fair, last week I watched like 10 hours of documentaries. (laughs) Yeah. So last week was a little bit extra, which is why I feel very manic you know yeah well i don't think but. anybody thinks you're not doing enough i'm just going to i think i can speak for for everybody who listens to this show and if anybody sure. does think you aren't doing enough i would kindly invite them to to come to los angeles and i'll punch them in the fucking face uh because you do so much constantly you know bringing it back to the boxer listen i have a very punchy energy which is very unlike me i am a lover not a fighter but yeah i'm just feeling it i'm like ready to go but yeah no i you do amazing work you always do top Mm. to bottom but i think it's great i think it's great that you that you wanted to learn a little bit more about bipolar because bipolar is also one of those things that i think it's like a word that people hear a lot but i think because mental illness and and mental differences have been, you know, so taboo or stigmatized or all those things for so long. I think there's a lot of misconceptions and even people who think that maybe they know things and that are very open and accepting, even still, may not really know the ins and outs of, of what all of those kinds of things uh, entail. So I think that's great. And yeah. again, listen, you, you do great work. No one's questioning no. it. Never could, never would. I mean. So we are talking about Elisa Lamb, obviously the Cecil Hotel. Now, I, of course, once this started, I realized as I, you know, the documentary started, I was like, I know, I know this. I've been there. What, what is this? So I didn't make the connection before, but I, right before the pandemic, so we're talking like February or early March 2020. I'm talking like first weekend in March, I think. So friends of mine, here in LA and my boyfriend and I we did this walking tour in downtown LA and it's it was kind of like talking about because there's like some of these underground tunnels and stuff that that still exist that existed you know back in the day prohibition times all those kinds of things 
And part of the tour was we go by the Cecil Hotel and they give you a little bit of backstory and those kinds of things. So I totally never made the connection, which is my own head up my own ass, I guess. But uh, it was, uh, it's so, it's so interesting because I, of course, while watching, immediately started texting Christy and I was just like, I know this hotel. Wait a minute. And do they not know it's on Skid Row? They, no girl should have been staying there alone. And then five minutes passed and I was like, okay, this isn't the main focus of this documentary. I'm going to stop texting you in the moment because they're covering this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, listen, I can, I, and this is a, this is a, a, a very quick aside. If anyone is thinking of coming to visit Los Angeles, uh, you know, once it's safe to travel again, I have noticed that there are a lot of kind of crappy hotels and motels that really make themselves sound like they're in a good area and that they're they're nice and all of these things and it is lies chains go with a chain go with a name you know (laughs) I'm not going to say them because we don't get paid by them but you know what I'm talking about if it's a name brand and it's got a good star rating I know that some people are like but I like a boutique hotel sure great that's fine I'm telling you from personal experience and from these experiences, you don't want to end up in a Cecil Hotel. That's all I'm going to say. And when they also, yeah. at the beginning of the doc, like they showed the Cecil Hotel website. And the first image is a street sign that says Hollywood Boulevard. I'm like, it's so far away from Hollywood. Now, Hollywood's a whole other story because Hollywood's dangerous too. But it's not like Skid Row. Skid Row's very dangerous. <laughs> but I was just like, it's just so misleading. And I think that, and we'll get into that, I'm sure, as we we, we talk about this more. I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but... I just feel like there's so many layers that like people really do get duped into these. I did when I first moved here. I or before I moved here, one of my first visits down here, I was very young and I thought you should stay in the heart of Hollywood and I ended up in this terrible hotel that looked great with a window that wouldn't lock on the ground floor oh. and I didn't sleep. I literally did I stayed in my clothes awake like staring at the ceiling. It was awful. So I, th- I do think, I, I think that's true of a lot of places, but I think Los Angeles, I'm, I'm just, I'm putting together that I think that's a real kind of theme here. Anyway, so bringing it back to us, because that's always fun. It reminded <laughs> yeah. me of the time I came to visit you in Moose Jaw. And speaking yeah. of tunnels, Moose Jaw, yeah. Saskatchewan, actually has a rich and vibrant uh, alcohol history. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah. yeah, and long before I moved here. Excuse me. Of <laughs> hey course. Yo. Hello. I love that I didn't even think to, like, look into this more. Oh, I... But I mean, we know the broad There, strokes. There are tunnels that supposedly connect to somewhere in the States. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. I already forget who our sister city is. I don't know. The point is, we're big for knowing Al Capone supposedly bootlegged in those tunnels yes and so christy yeah. uh, like a great host took me on a tunnel tour in moose jaw which is it was just kind of one of the things to do there and it was great i loved it like you get to go down and see the thing they give you the history i love all that stuff and so <laughs> we're on this tour and it's very cramped again like these are not yes. like this is not a spacious thing and it's not a big group but it's a very kind of like enclosed space and the guide who I believe is also dressed in like in like period clothes, old timey, old timey yep. clothes. Yep. Asked asked for a volunteer. Did they not? Did they? Didn't they say? Didn't yeah. they also word it that it was like I need an actor or actress? It was like, do we have any actor or actresses? Do we have an actor among us? Yes. Yeah. 
To which I, of course, looked at you. This was like probably like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But still, yeah, you were acting. I was, yeah. So I looked to you and you looked me dead in the eye and went, don't you dare. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, I did not. She respected my boundary. Well, here's a fun fact about me, which I know makes no sense to anyone, but I get really uncomfortable in certain things, certain situations, which include dinner theater. So like interactive dinner theater, which I did as a job as an actor. And I can do it on that yeah. side. But being like a audience member, I it makes me insanely uncomfortable, insanely uncomfortable. And I this was the same thing. Like I was like the idea right now of like volunteering to like go to the front and whatever act through this scene with this person which I understand I do that for a living but it's I don't know why it makes me extremely anxious and I was like please don't do this to me I beg you please but do you remember the gag of why they wanted it to be an actor I don't because there was nobody amongst us who was an actor so then they were like yeah and they just like picked some random person and they were like cool act as a doorstop and hold the door open. Ah. Uh, and that was the whole bit is they wanted someone to act like a someone to hold right. the door open. That's right. And like and then that was it. So it's like, oh, I guess we could have, but that's still weird. So it's like, no, oh, no, we did the right thing. We did the we right did the thing. right thing. We avoided yeah. what could have been a scene, but was actually just a just a bit. <laughs> it was just a bit that they had put into their tour. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's so weird. I have those weird Yeah, I can tell you exactly why. We're, we're already into the therapy part of the podcast, which just feels insanely early. But I like but it. I may have talked about this before on the podcast. If I have, you can skip ahead. I'm not offended. But when I was a little kid, three, my mother took me to McDonald's. It was the dead of summer. I was super, it was super hot out in my hometown, Belleville, Ontario, Canada. Shout out. And there was, a, at the McDonald's, there was a stage show going on. And it was all of the characters in the suits. And Ronald McDonald, they were like, we need a volunteer. And he was like, how about you, little girl? And I was very shy. And I was like, no. And he's like, do you want to ruin it for everyone? And I think that that, of course, led to my fear of clowns. But what I'm putting together right now is that it also <laughs> leads to my anxiety about being chosen as a volunteer. I think it's just very literal. Yeah. I think that's it. Well, yeah, that checks out. Yeah. And I also, it shouldn't be where my brain goes, but I can't imagine being in those costumes in the heat they shouldn't have been they, they shouldn't have been do you remember me wearing a costume like that in public yes you i don't know if you've ever heard the story or not i assume i told you i uh, yes i this is really it's like the picture i can see it but it's like it's covered in vaseline and i need to wipe it away fair it's going to come yeah. back yeah we Oh, God, I guess we had a Walmart that was being built here and it was having a grand opening. So they wanted to have people dressed up as different like brand mascots to walk around the store. So it would be like an extra fun thing for whoever is in the store or whatever. And I don't remember how much they paid. I don't believe it was very much. And I believe I spent it on the way out. <laughs> the door <laughs> because it was exciting we finally got a store that has like all this stuff that we didn't have before right. so I was so jazzed and so this was back when I was buying like CDs and DVDs and so I was I spent it easily before I left but the joke is so I'm in the costume I didn't get to pick it came down to like so we got two costumes left we got 
this one that's just basically like a big baby. And I'm not sure why. Yeah. But they, but, and they were like, oh, just a heads up. Like the, the air condition, the head vent isn't working quite right. So it's going to get really hot in there. And so the other option is uh, where I went because I'm like, I want one with a working vent. Uh, I went as the Pringles man. (laughs) Um, Now, who is the Pringles man? You're saying just, He's just a circle on the can with a mustache. He's just a guy. But in real life, he's that large head on a body that looks like somebody from a barbershop quartet. <laughs> with like the, the the suit. I think there was like a band around the around the arm. I can see this now. Um, I can see it now. It was a lot. Yeah. Uh, so I did uh, wander around the store. But then my, in this huge head, which was very hot... There is a little fan in there, but mine kept cutting out. So I would do a lap of the store and then go into the back room and take the head off and then just sit for five. Oh, yeah. And then it's like, okay, head back on and out you go. And I remember running into the baby every once in a while because it's just this like older woman uh, and she... She was always walking around. She had the head underneath her arm. And then she had like the body, which was comically large and just a big saggy diaper. And it was amazing. And I remember just like, see, we'd run into each other and it was just like, hey, because we were both like, we hate this so much. Because yeah. we were there for like eight hours. It was oh, too much. that's too long. But the point is, I also so many, nobody really knew who I was. So that was the other real joke. It's like more people were excited about the big baby <laughs> at me they were just like i don't know i i guess it looks like a thing of chips it's like yes i am the chip did you talk like were you talking under the big head so like were people like who are you and you were like i'm mr pringle i'm embarrassed to say that i didn't know what voice to give so if i was i was overly animated in my (laughs) gestures so if somebody like obviously I would wave to to children that were excited and then I kind of went full like Mickey Mouse at Disneyland so if somebody said something to me I would like you know you put the hand as close to the mouth and do like the uh, like the shake like you're laughing (laughs) and a lot of like finger guns so you were a silent character is what I'm hearing yes okay, because gotcha. i didn't know what else but don't think i didn't give it my all <laughs> i never said that a silent performance wasn't an amazing performance okay you could still I mean, win an oscar when for I wasn't being taking silent. breaks come on yeah, yeah. oh my god i mean god. The, I, there was not going to be an oscar awarded to that performance because you were robbed you were clearly again. robbed well yeah it was it was an experience would i do it again no i actually <laughs> was in one of those suits once too in like eighth grade i grade eight canada hello we say it different in canada anyway i franklin the turtle from the children's books yeah they wanted someone to go down to the younger classes dressed in this suit i don't know why i don't even know where the suit came from which feels gross in retrospect but because i was a really good student they were like you can take the afternoon off school off classes and put the suit on and go entertain the little ones so i did but the fan was broken in mine and it was awful it was so hot it was a very there's it was a terrible experience there i'll say it i mean the kids loved it and the i think that the one difference for me was that they recognized Franklin, so that it was kind of a big deal to them, so that yeah. was kind of fun. But yeah, 10 out of 10 would, or excuse me, 0 out of 10 would not recommend. <laughs> oh, I assumed it was 10 out of 10 
as to no, I would not do it again. Yeah. So I assumed you kind of went the other way, but yeah. Yeah. I like that we both had awful experiences in suits. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I have a vision of us when we inevitably get our wildly successful streaming show. I have visions of us in as an homage to that in those suits with the big heads. I don't know what the suits are going to be. I don't know what the characters are, but I just have, I feel like that's going to happen. We, it needs to be the cartoon version of us from our. Oh, of course. But like, it has to be comically large so that we can get into the suit. Yes. (laughs) The head is going to be like that big. We're going to be like Caillou. Oh, oh, I can't even. May he rest. Yeah. Well, not peacefully. <laughs> All parents are excited to see it go. I know. I know. It's I wouldn't let mine watch it, so I didn't even realize it was still going, but I'm just happy to know it's stopped. And people, that they've finally parents stopped. hate it because he's whiny? Is that what it is? He's the worst. The worst. Yeah. Like, you say no to him, and he's like on the floor screaming. Oh. And in the end, just gets his way. Doesn't... So he doesn't learn anything. So, which is why we wouldn't allow it because we're like, well, we're not going to show our kids that yeah. they can pull that shit and get away with it. It does feel like questionable messaging. I'll give you that. Yeah. Caillou, to me, is the kid who grows up and in the drive line at school stops in the middle <laughs> to let their kid in and out of the car and just blocks all the traffic. That's Caillou to me. Well, he's blocking something with that giant head. Yes. So what? basically yeah. what I'm hearing you say is, Fuck you, Caillou. There's a reason it rhymes. What I love is I think we get through most of these episodes with no F-bombs at all. And I think I have dropped like at least 10 so far. (laughs) Buckle up, friends. Buckle up. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure that I have at least once in every episode. I mean, I was joyous that I made it through, I think, the Facebook Live without a single swear. I was so proud. Didn't make it through the Instagram one, I think, without it. But it was later in the day. I've I've already if there's a quota, oh, I've hit it today. Especially just a straight on F you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well Well, I can't help how passionate I get. No. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. Let's get into it. As I have said, of course, we are going to be talking about Elisa Lamb in this episode of the show. The documentary that's on Netflix right now, of course, that's just launched is Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. If you haven't seen it, don't worry, because we're going to give you a synopsis right now and go through everything that you need to know in order for what we're going to tell you to make sense. So in January 2013, 21-year-old Elisa Lamb goes missing while on vacation in Los Angeles. 19 days later, Elisa's body is found in a water tank on the roof of the infamous Cecil Hotel. I've had half a drink. Good God. The only lead that police have is a four-minute security cam video of Elisa acting strangely in one of the hotel's elevators. What happened to Elisa Lamb? How did she get into that water tank? And what could that eerie security video and could that eerie security video be some sort of clue? Ugh. Now, it's funny because I forgot. I mean, I was living here when this happened, and I I don't know why. It, 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 it touched on it a little bit in the documentary, but there was this other big case that was happening at that same time where there was that guy who started killing police officers. It was a yeah. crazy time in the news. I just remember very much at that point. And 
it was interesting because I, it, it, of course, bumped me because she was Canadian. She was visiting from from Canada, from BC, right? And so, anytime, of course, I mean, again, us Canadians, it's like it's like every Canadian knows every Canadian, or or <laughs> knows of every like any celebrity who's Canadian. Yeah, you know, you just do. It's like we're born with like a weird computer chip that's like you just know like drake canadian you know pamela anderson canadian you know all of them Kiefer sutherland i could keep going it'd take forever the point is is that i do remember this kind of like i remember it affecting me because i was like oh my gosh it's here in la this place i haven't lived very long it's a canadian gal and and it's always tragic regardless but it was like oh i remember it being on my radar and then i remember this other case being so crazy it was just a really overwhelming time so yeah, that's 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 what that's my lead in for you, which is it was an overwhelming time. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I yeah, I mean, I love that there's just there's something about Canada we're all mentally linked. Yeah, where it's like, oh yeah, I know that person's Canadian. It's why a lot of people throughout the world will be like, oh hey, you're from Canada. Do you know this guy? Yeah. And it's like, I know, I actually don't literally know everybody, yeah. but like, you just, you can sense, you sense it. Oh yeah. In a, in a Canadian. Yeah. Truly. There's just something. So yeah, Elisa Lamb, as you said, she was 21. She was from Vancouver, BC. Uh, she had recently left university. I think she actually graduated, but I'm not hundred percent. It seemed very like everywhere they said she was a student, but she hadn't actually been a student for a few months because I think she had left and she was on this trip to LA for the sake of like, she just wants to kind of figure out what she's going to do next with her life. Uh, she was very active on her blog and mostly on Tumblr, which she kind of used like a diary. She was described as friendly, outgoing. She enjoyed reading and movies, traveling. The Great Gatsby was her favorite book. Hmm. Don't know why that was a thing to do, but we like to uh, we like to talk about them. So, yeah. you know, there you go. She just decided she needed to get away. And so she decided on this West Coast tour, as she called it. She did San Francisco. She went to L.A. And the plan was, I think, Santa Cruz after that. And this is late January of 2013. Right. So she goes to, L she gets to L.A. She has decided she's going to stay at a place that's called Stay on Main. But before it was that, it was called the Cecil Hotel. This place opened in like the 1920s. There were 700 rooms to it. Um, there's a beautiful like fancy marble lobby that has stained glass windows and palm trees. And then you get like past the lobby and suddenly like uh, it just kind of goes down as far as how classy it looks. Yeah. But like within five years of it opening, uh, the U.S. sank into the Great Depression. So it kind of wasn't seeing a lot of action. But then it bounced back. And in the 1940s, it was like the destination. And then somehow it just went back down again. And as of like 1950s, it started being associated with transients, the area around the hotel came to be known as Skid Row. It's like a four mile or six kilometer uh, radius that is home to as many as 10,000 homeless people. So the Cecil Hotel, uh, despite its very beautiful lobby, 
Uh, I'm into hotel lobbies, like the really classy ones. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh yeah, gorgeous. Like I recently watched the uh, Queen Latifah movie, The Last Holiday, ah. and she went to stay at a hotel in some place in Europe, and the ho- the lobby. I was like, oh, this is gorgeous, and she even commented to the receptionist, like, this lobby is beautiful and the receptionist is just like what are you talking about whatever let's move on and it was i don't know the point is it was lovely and i was just like it is a nice lobby i like a i like a nice marble sure <laughs> I don't absolutely know what's going on so despite how lovely the lobby seemed the hotel has a very dark and unfortunate history yeah so much death is associated with it between 1927 and 2015 there were 14 suicides in the hotel. We're going to get graphics, so buckle up. Yeah. So uh, we've got two self-inflicted gunshots, three that ingested poison, one slashed his own throat, eight people jumped or possibly fell because they can't really, like once you find them laying there, you can't know for sure, uh, including one person who jumped to her death and landed on a pedestrian that was walking on the sidewalk and killed them both. Jesus. Uh, I looked into it further and found that people like to use hotels um, if they're contemplating suicide because they don't want to inflict that kind of damage on their own home and most kind of want to make sure their family member isn't going to be the one who finds them. Interesting. So that's why hotels seem to be kind of like the hotbed of events yes. for that. There were also two murders involved with the hotel. One was, well, I mean, Elizabeth Short, who is known as the Black Dahlia. Yeah. She wasn't killed at the hotel, but she was drinking at the hotel bar just days before her death. So people automatically connect her death to the hotel. Right. But then there was a 19-year-old girl who was staying at the hotel with her 38-year-old boyfriend. Oh, boy. She had no idea she was pregnant, and she ended up giving birth at the hotel while her boyfriend was sleeping. The baby comes out. She just makes the quick assumption, you know what? I think the baby's dead, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? The, qu- the answer is... Open the window and throw it out the window. Oh, my God. That's awful. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this, uh, this, there, there was a lot of, there was a lot of darkness in this one. There's also, in 1991, there was a serial killer from Austria na- named, and forgive me, Jack Unterweger, Unterweger. So he's convicted of a murder in 1974. Yeah. He goes to prison. He starts writing. He finds he has a real talent for it. He loves it. His writing gets out in the world. People are like, oh, look at his writing is beautiful. Clearly it means he's rehabilitated. So let's let him out. He gets out in 1990 and immediately kills eight more women. Oh, my God. Then he gets hired by a magazine to write about crime in L.A., and the difference between U.S. and European attitudes towards prostitution. So he comes to L.A., he meets with local police, and did a ride-along throughout the city's red-light districts so he can, like, really do his research. And then he killed three sex workers. Oh, God. <laughs> did he kill them in the Cecil, or was it... They were found in and around the Cecil. Yeah. 
So those three deaths definitely go into how many deaths are involved with this hotel. And there's another serial killer that was involved with the Cecil Hotel. And I'm going to let Lauren talk about that. It's a serial killer alert. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't think normally that would be so cheery. No, it shouldn't be at all. Uh, okay, so it, you're excited. dear listeners, you're excited. here's what's up. On True Crime and Cocktails, we deal with unsolved mysteries, unsolved cases, those kinds of things. But one thing about old Lauren Ash is that she has, what is not uncommon, a fascination with serial killers. And specifically, one serial killer that obviously is tied to this case. And some of you have have reached out to us in general about whether we're ever going to talk about this case, or this person rather. And then people have reached out specifically about will we talk about him in regards to the Cecil Hotel. And the answer is, uh, my dreams are coming true because I basically just got to write a report about Richard Ramirez that I'm about to present to you. And I could not be more uh, excited. So yes, Richard Ramirez has a connection to the Cecil Hotel. The whole thing is wild. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump into it because uh, I yes. love the Night Stalker documentary on Netflix. If you haven't watched that yet, uh, check it out. Christy, you watched it today, didn't you? I did. That was my I was I was like, oh, I'm ahead of time. Yeah. I'm ready for recording tonight, and it's only like 9 a.m. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna get a hot chocolate and you're gonna hunker down in the blankets. And watch a really brutal documentary. (laughs) Really hard to watch. Very unsettling. Here's the deal. So again, when people had asked us, are you going to cover the Night Stalker documentary? We we kind of were like, no, because again, like our thing is that we, and listen, who knows what the future holds? Never say never. But again, our thing is unsolved cases. So I was just like, I don't think there's ever going to be an opportunity for me to do this. And and I'm, I'm just jazzed. Again, I'm the little horse that's ready to run, so here we go. I also want you all to know that I'm such a nerd that I had to let Christy know that I I typed out notes, and I did do a little bit of research, but that most of this I already knew. <laughs> like, why am I bragging about my serial killer knowledge? Not you not want bragging. the praise. You want the praise for your reports. There's somebody else <laughs> in this podcast duo. Who also misses getting grades. I was just going to say, looks like two of us are looking for report cards. So here we go. Send it over. Yep. I'll stamp it. That'll be nice. I probably have some stickers kicking around. Now now you're getting getting real. Now you're getting real. All right. So we're going to take you on a quick little journey. I'm just going to give you a little bit of some backstory. Because one of the criticisms that the Night Stalker documentary got was that it didn't really talk about Richard Ramirez's upbringing at all. So I am going to go into that in depth for those of you who maybe don't know about him and this is going to fill in some blanks for you so here we go so he was born in 1960 in El Paso Texas he was the youngest of five his father was extremely abusive and you know verbally physically all of the above there is a story that was told that when he was bad his dad would tie him to a crucifix and put him in the cemetery because they were very religious to like make him repent and think about what he did let's just say (laughs) it didn't didn't help his mother worked at a boot factory and she was around a lot of chemicals and all five of the children had some form of birth defects they were all apparently different but each of the kids had something there was respiratory difficulties bone deformities each of them had something wrong which again apparently being exposed to these fumes when she was pregnant with them 
this was a thing. Right. So, uh, again, these are all the, these are the, the things that you kind of learn about that are building the case for, you know, why was he the way he is. He also had two extreme head injuries as a child. When he was two, a dresser fell on him, which was a big head injury. And then when he was five, a swing, like on a swing set, hit him and it hit him hard enough that he was knocked out. So, and, and it is also possible he did have other head injuries because, again, his father was quite physically abusive. So, again, this is just painting a picture of, of who we're dealing with here. So, buckle up because it's about to get bad. Mm. So, in 1972, Richard is 12. He has an older cousin, Mike. Mike was a Green Beret in Vietnam, and he had been through some shit over there, including raping and killing women. And he had Polaroids of all of this, and he decided to share those with 12-year-old Richard Ramirez. So he got shown all of these images of women being raped, and there was one, apparently, of his cousin Mike holding one of the heads of one of the women that he had decapitated after. Yeah, pretty awful. So... This is at 12, okay? When Richard is 13, he witnesses his older cousin Mike get into a fight with his wife. So Mike and his wife get into a fight. Mike pulls out a gun, shoots his wife in the face, and kills her in front of Richard, who's 13 at the time. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so again, you, you, see where, you see where we're going here. So that same year, and again, you're thinking, like, what else formative could have happened? Well, he moved in with his sister, Ruth, that same year when he was 13. Her husband, Roberto, was an obsessive peeping Tom. And, of course, oh. decided to start taking Richard out with him on his nightly excursions to spy on people and peep on people through their windows and whatnot. So, oh my God. yeah. So now we got to add in the fact that at around age 10, Richard started smoking weed. And then as he got a little bit older, 13, 14, 15, he started doing a lot of LSD. And that was around the time that he started getting really into Satan. And I mean, who knows? I, I don't know whether that was as a you know response to maybe some of his religious upbringing, the stuff with his dad, if it was, you know, again if that was something his cousin Mike had influenced on him, I have no idea. But that is when the Satan stuff started. So in 1977, his cousin Mike, who, of course, had been arrested for shooting his wife in the face, he had been Thank in... Thank God. I know. He had been in a mental okay. hospital for four years, okay? So the, the murder happened in 73, 77. He's, he's been there for four years. He's found not guilty because of insanity. And then he just gets out. And I would have thought that if you were not guilty because of insanity, that means that you would have stayed in the mental institution. Like, I thought, I I don't understand. I don't know whether it was like, I, I don't know the ins and outs of that case. I don't know whether it was like he he claimed he was like insane in the moment or something. I have no idea. But it's, uh, yeah. So Mike's out at that point. At oh. this point... Richard gets a job at a Holiday Inn where he, of course, had a pass key to get in and out of rooms. So he, of course, starts using that pass key to sneak in while people sleep and rob them. He's very good at stealing. He's like a very quiet, stealthy thief. This was like a running joke, I guess, with him and his friends was that he was a good thief. But then, of course, things escalate. One night, he gets into a room and he attempts to rape a woman. And her husband was out of the room at the time, but he came back in and caught Richard in the moment. 
beat the shit out of him. And then uh, I guess they called the police, but then they never followed through with the charges or the charges ended up being dropped because they didn't want to testify. So this is when he's a teenager. Okay. This is when he's 17. So again, it's like, it just makes you think about what would have happened. And I'm not blaming that couple. I, you know, everyone's on their own journey, but like, how would things have potentially gone different if he had been, you know, convicted at that time? Who knows? But anyway, so he dropped out of school at the ninth grade. Uh, I, that's an out of order note, but I thought it was important to mention. And then at 22, he moved to California where he spent the rest of his life. So April 1984 is when he did his first murder. He was in San Francisco. That murder it was never credited to him. It wasn't until 2009 that DNA evidence linked him to that murder. It was a it was a child, unfortunately. It was a very oh. awful, awful story. And in 2016, there was actually more DNA evidence that revealed that there was another person at that crime scene that they do believe was a minor at the time and that that identity has not been revealed. And I've always, I've, I've found that very interesting because it seemed like he was mimicking his upbringing, because when he was young, he had these older men showing him these extremely inappropriate things. And then it seems that he maybe did the same thing. Getting his own unsub. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was April 1984. He killed again in June 1984. Then he took a break until March 1985. So that was kind of like a long rest. Although that being said, yeah. it's also possible he could have killed people in that time. And we don't know about it because he killed so many people. And I'm, I'm blowing through the, some of this just because, again, this is about the Cecil Hotel and we need to get there. But anyway, I'm also sure. very excited. He went on this murder spree that was from March 1985 to August 1985. And it was exceptionally hot in Southern California, in L.A. And at that time, of course, this was in the mid-80s. Lots of people didn't necessarily have central air or air conditioning. So a lot of people right. were, leaving, were opening their windows to sleep at night because it was like stifling hot. And of course, for someone who is a stealthy burglar, stealthy thief, he would literally just randomly sneak into people's houses. And it seemed as though there was kind of no rhyme or reason to it. And one of the things that you kind of learn in the documentary is that he didn't really have an M.O. Like a lot of serial killers, it's like one thing, like they have one target. With Richard Ramirez, it was all over. It was like sometimes he abducted children and yeah. and you know assaulted them and then let them live sometimes it was like he killed a husband and assaulted the wife sometimes he killed both people that were there like it, it just it was kind of scattershot and random and that's why some people like debate that he's a sociopath rather than a psychopath because a psychopath there is a belief is like more calculating and controlling and wants to like have everything planned and that his sociopathy okay. is is based more in chaos but you know there's lots of different, you know, schools of thought about that, in my opinion. So, and I mean, this, some nights he was doing two houses in a night, which I also blows my mind that it's like, it, he got very bold very quickly, I guess, is, is what really stuck out to me. The only kind of like through line was there was a fair amount of Asian people. I don't know whether that was a choice again or if it was completely random. It seemed like it was completely random, but there that was the one thing that there was, you know, Asian women. And then later on, when he was incarcerated, he often would request people send him like pictures of Asian women in bathing suits, like in bikinis and stuff. Because I guess at that prison, it was like you weren't allowed to have any nude photos, but he would like ask people regularly to send him specifically pictures of Asian women. So I don't know if that was a thing. I don't know. But that's that. 
So every he was terrorizing all of L.A. Everyone was, of course, losing their minds, obviously, uh, because, it, again, there was like every, no one felt safe. And it was during this year that he stayed at the Cecil. And as they said in the documentary, he would often change out of his like bloody clothes behind the Cecil, throw them into the dumpster and then just go up to his room completely naked. And because the Cecil at that time especially was so crazy, nobody really thought anything of it. They were just like, oh, yeah, okay. And what I thought was interesting, too, was one of the gentlemen interviewed in the the documentary said, in the 80s, anything above the sixth floor at the Cecil was dangerous. He was like, people went up there to get murdered. Like, you didn't go above the sixth floor ever. And he was like, certainly on the upper floors, that's where people went to get killed. And then, of course, come to find out, Richard Ramirez stayed on the top floor, the 14th floor. So it's interesting to me that, like, the higher you went, the kind of lore was that the more dangerous it got. And he was staying at the very top, which makes sense. Now, something interesting about him getting caught, which I didn't realize, and I didn't really fully get into this in in the Night Stalker, was they talked about an anonymous informant who had, had called them and was like, I think I know this guy. And then it turned out that his story was true and, and he they showed him a picture and they were like, yes, this is definitely the guy. After that, he went missing and he's never been found. He was on an episode. There was an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, the original Unsolved Mysteries, about the guy that had identified Richard Ramirez, which did lead to him being caught. His name was uh, Alejandro Espinoza. He had a wife and two children. Now, at the time... He was apparently living on the streets, I believe, in Skid Row. And I believe that they met probably around the Cecil. Sure. And and that's how they had that connection. Uh, now, apparently, they were saying that I read that they don't think foul play was involved. But it does seem a little bit convenient to me that, you know, he, he was literally the main linchpin in, in what led to Richard Ramirez getting caught. And then he literally immediately disappeared. Now, again, timing-wise... I don't know that it could have been Richard Ramirez because he was caught very soon after that tip came in, but I don't know. It just feels it just feels like for a case that's already so grisly and chilling, it's just another layer of mystery, right? Yeah. Now, again, uh, obviously, we, we know the story, or for those who don't, he was in Arizona around that time, and the police decided to put his face on all the newspapers. So when he got back to L.A., he noticed that his face was on the newspapers, and he was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? He jumps on a bus to East L.A., Gets out, tries to carjack people, tries to steal a car, can't do it. The locals recognize him. They just, they, the vigilante justice, they beat the shit out of him. When the policeman, one, shows up, he literally was like, thank God you're here because I think those, he, he was pretty sure those people were going to kill him and they probably would have. And then I did like that moment where they were interviewing that cop and he was just like, I realized in that moment I was, <laughs> I didn't know what to do because it, there was only one police officer who had arrived at that point to apprehend Richard Ramirez and an angry mob yeah. of people who were justifiably angry. Um, Yeah. Now, his trial, this is another interesting fact. His trial started in August 88, and it lasted for over a year, 13 months. And it had to pause a month in because one day one of the jurors didn't show up. One of the women on the jury was murdered. And at first, they thought it was one of Richard Ramirez's super fans because, of course, he did have this legion especially right. of women who were these huge fans of his that came out very quickly but it actually turned out that it was her boyfriend at the time and then he later did kill himself but again like the layers to this case at every or this this person oh. again just like his his energy his aura of evil it feels like it just branched out to anyone who was near him which is i have goosebumps he was convicted on all the charges 
13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, 14 burglaries. They, they were, there were more crimes like the ones with the children. But again, as I said in, in um, the Night Stalker documentary, they didn't have the children take the stand because they knew he was going to get the death penalty and they didn't want to put the children through that, which we get it. Yeah. So, of course, he was, he was sentenced to death. He was in prison for 23 years, San Quentin. And uh, he was a chronic masturbator in prison. Chronically would not stop would not stop apparently his niece went to visit him and he mm. masturbated in front of her she she <laughs> then it was like she never returned i was like that's yeah i wouldn't have either yeah. apparently it was so bad that they ended up putting him in solitary confinement for a lot of his stay there for most of his 23 years because he he just was isn't that what he'd want well i'm wondering if if that's what he was doing if he was trying to get put alone or something uh, i don't know yeah he had a lot of pen pals. A lot of people wanted to write to him. He would often send them art that he had done, often depicting demons and knives. And then, of course, he would ask for that, the, you know, semi-nudes of Asian women. But, yeah, he ended up dying of lymphoma, again, 23 years into the sentence. And, you know, I, I think, and I, I had texted Christy this, too. I think for me, I mean, all serial killers, obviously, it's, it's I think... The fascination for me in general is just I can't imagine having like a, a, an atom of that instinct. And so I, I'm fascinated by it because I'm so horrified by it. But he really does. He is kind of the top of the list for me in, in the level of, of horror. And I think when you watch that documentary or if you've seen, you know, video of him, he just was so dead eyed and so evil. It just feels like... Mm-hmm. I just think that there was something else going on. I think obviously there's lots in his childhood that influenced him, but I think that there is an evil to him. If you believe in energies and spirits and all of those things, which I do, I think that there was also an evil to him. I don't think it's a coincidence that like, you know, the guy who got him caught disappeared. The woman on the jury got killed. Like, I think that he, he had like, I think he was tapped into a very evil energy. Yeah, And that, Ms. Oxborough, was my presentation on Richard Ramirez. <laughs> I, first of all, I think you did a great Thank job. you so much. Very detailed. I don't even feel like I need to check uh, any sources because I feel like you nailed it. Thank you. I have a question. Oh, yes. I should have asked. I should have asked. So, I well, I guess I have two. Yes. One, so like... His brother-in-law, cousin, who was Mike? His cousin, his older cousin. Yeah. Did he go to jail and just stay there? I don't, you know what, I need to look into. Ever? Like after he I was let out? It's a good question and I should look into that. I want to say yes. I want to say that he went back. It would be surprising if he didn't because it felt like he definitely had it in him to reoffend. <laughs> he was diagnosed yeah. with, with a, I think, some sort of like complex PS- PTSD, which does not give him any, like, yeah. no, I don't care. Like, a lot of, yeah. a lot, a lot of people, both service people and other people, live with PTSD and don't do any of the things that he did. So I, I yeah. and certainly don't, you know, kill, kill people. So... I, that is a great question I should look into because I, I, my gut is telling me he has to have gone back. He has to have. Yeah. Uh, my other question, the earlier 
uh, crime that they didn't find out until they linked his DNA several years later. And then they found another DNA with it. Could it possibly have been the Mike? Or is it possible he was training someone else to like take over and do the same thing he was doing so they could both go on a spree and terrorize multiple places at once? And could that guy have been the one who took out the guy who tattled on him? Great theory. I think that that's very plausible. It was They said that it was definitely uh, of a younger person and that the belief was that the person was mm-hmm. a minor at the time that the murder had happened. So that's why they didn't release the name. But that's a very good point. I bet you if if there was some sort of partner at some point, absolutely that person could have taken out Alejandro, who was the, the anonymous informant. Now I want to know, I want to know that if they have the name and they're just choosing not to release yeah. it because they feel like it's uh, he was a minor... I need to know they just kind of kept an eye. Just like keep an eye on someone like that. I, you know? Yeah. I mean, I want, I don't know what the, that's a, that's another thing to research. I don't know what the rules are on that because you would think if they were involved in that brutal and vicious of a crime, um, that even if they didn't release the name, wouldn't the person have to answer for that? Wouldn't they still have to get, couldn't they still get arrested for that? I don't think there's a statute of limitations on mm-hmm. murder. So wouldn't there be, for attempted murder? That's a good question. And also, like, even if this person did this, regardless of how young they were, can't they still even get, like, have a moment where you look into trying them as an adult? Because if you do something of that level, that's adult enough. Oh, yeah. You be charged as an adult. Unless, you know? again, it was someone random that he forced off the street or something. Like, like I don't know if that was part of it, too. Fair. I don't Fair. know. But again, it's a very good question. And I, I hope that if there is an additional layer to it, like that, 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 that will eventually come to light. Just again, to get justice for the, yeah. in that case, a very, um, very young victim. Yeah, it's, it's really something. But in regards to the Cecil Hotel, also, I think it's also important to know, like Richard Ramirez, to me, the Night Stalker, like, I think that's a pretty prolific name, even if you don't know a lot about them. And certainly, if you do a Google of the the Cecil Hotel, even in 2012, 2013, these are the things that are going to come up. And you may have planned to talk about this later, so I'm sorry if I'm stepping on your toes. But one of the things that kept striking me in that document, in the, the Cecil Hotel documentary, was how misleading they have been of people. Because they make it sound like this, this stay, changing the name, putting, a, you know, and, and that, that manager who I know we'll get into, who I can't, because yeah. she seems very... I have thoughts. But talking about, like, she's like, well, we did, you know, we put on a fresh coat of paint. Like, she was talking about it as though she thought what they were doing was right. And I'm like, are you kidding? You were luring travelers. You were misleading people and luring them to a place that is not only currently dangerous, but has a very large history of having a lot of violence and death and all of those kinds of things attached to it. Now, again, very quickly, I have, having been here, I was go- a friend of mine was working at a bar downtown when I first moved here and I was going to she was uh, singing at the bar gr- doing this like old 1940s lounge act it was great so I was going nice. to see her perform and she gave me these she knew I was new to town she gave me these explicit instructions she was like when you come down drive on these streets do not draw- turn on these streets and she's like if you turn on those streets don't stop at the stop signs keep going 
because basically the, even now there's like a line of of where it's kind of been like built up and if you get past that point you end up accidentally in skid row which I have before and literally you can just take a wrong turn and then I've had junkies like chase my car try and jump on the car like it it becomes it's a very different world very quickly and I obviously have a lot of compassion for anybody who who is living in 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 that place and is has found themselves in that place in their lives I have a lot of compassion but it is also very dangerous because obviously addiction is something that for for some people can be very powerful and will cause them to do lots of things to try and feed that addiction to try and get money or whatever and I'm not painting everyone down there with that brush I want to make that very clear but I will just say again like the idea of traveling down there as a 21 year old woman alone terrifying like I I just really think I'll say it shame on that woman and shame on them for making that hotel look like and I get it. They're trying to make a buck, whatever. But it's still, I'm like, you are culpable. I think at the end of the day, I think, I mean, and I guess you could argue otherwise, but I just think that it's like, if you marketed it like it was, which is like, hey, you want a real taste of the Cecil Hotel? Here's the, you know, the sordid past. People would go. Yeah. <laughs> but trying Probably. to make it like it's a safe place for, you know, youth travelers is just not true. So anyway, that's my yeah. rant about that. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I mean, they did, uh, I mean, we will get into it shortly, yes. but when Elisa goes missing, so many people from, like, around the world who, not unlike ourselves, consider them a bit of a web sleuth, yeah. flocked to that hotel. And that manager was saying, like, there are just so many people wanted to come here because of it. They wanted to see it themselves. They wanted to... You know, so again, yeah, if they were like up front and were like, this is the kind of shit that goes, that's gone down here, there's probably still going to be people who are like, oh yeah, like the people who want to stay in a haunted house. I mean, have I recently Googled what are the most haunted places in Canada with the thought that at some point you and I would do a road trip, but it'll just be videos of me crying in the night because I can't handle being in a ghost house? Yeah. Yeah. It won't be entertaining. It'll be sad. <laughs> well, good news. It's so sad. You won't be alone in those tears because that sounds terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it just felt like it felt right. Oh, yeah. But I was like, send in two big chickens. Yeah. It's like, well, there's your show. Yeah, that's the show. That's the big show. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Because what, what a mess. I mean, I'm not... I'm not saying that the Cecil Hotel is haunted, but I'm not not saying it. Sure. You know, you got to keep an open mind in these situations. Yeah. But I mean, they did try and distance themselves from the death magnet reputation that they had. And in 2011, they upgraded to where the first three floors were for permanent tenants uh, from the seventh floor up was the Cecil Hotel, and then the floors in between, four to six, were a youth hostel-style hotel called Stay on Main. And that is where Elisa Lam decided to stay during her time in Los Angeles. Um, so she arrives late January, 
She was staying in room 506B with a few other girls, but she got moved to a private room on January 31st after the girls complained about Elisa's odd behavior. She was writing notes that said things like go away and go home and leaving them on the beds of these other girls. At one point when the girls tried to get in the room, Elisa wouldn't let them saying they needed a password. So I get why they'd be annoyed, but they moved her to her own thing. She visited a local store called The Last Bookstore and purchased gifts for her family. I checked it on Google Maps. It was technically the closest bookstore. So if she just like walked out and went around the corner, she would have found it. So it wasn't like a weird, she sought it out. It was just like, it was close enough, I believe. That's why she chose it. And it's it. quite a landmark. Like, it's quite big. And it's it's like, it's like if you look right. through a guidebook of, like, things to do in downtown L.A., that'll be on it. Oh, yeah. well, see the other perspective. <laughs> see, come on. And you thought you were only bringing Richard Ramirez info into this. Listen, come on. Come on. I love it. Always a shining star. Yes. She went to a live taping of a show I can't for the life of me find which show it was, but she was seen acting erratically. She wrote a really long rambling letter to the host of the show. And when she tried to push people into giving the letter to the host, she was seen as a threat and removed from the building. I did see she went to uh, an airing of uh, Strombolopolis tonight. Oh, in when they did a, show a few shows in vancouver in like april 2012 but i can't find what show she went to in la uh could have been many but and for those i'm just also americans who may, may not know george george strombolopoulos is a, a yes. canadian uh well he started as a, a radio host and then he went on to host on much music which is like canada's mtv yeah. uh, and then he got his own show on the cbc great guy uh, hi to george beautiful <laughs> He is he in knows. Christie's wheelhouse for sure. For sure, for sure. Yeah, like we're talking back since like much music days. Like don't don't say it. When I was when I was a like mid to late teens and first saw his face and was like he is stunning. Uh I will marry him someday. I he's got a very long last name. I believe he's Greek. Yes, he is. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, I spent some time learning how to spell his last name because I truly believed in the future it would come in handy. And maybe you were trying to use the secret, which I like. <laughs> it didn't work. Well. <laughs> I did end up with a last name that a lot of people are not sure how to pronounce because it seems scary but because there's an X in there. Yeah. But when you realize it's just two words kind of crammed yeah. together, it's fine. The joke is, anytime I've had to write that name since, it's like, I know how to spell it. The things it's that stick with ridiculous. you. It's just ridiculous. You just need to focus on the vowels. Because I taught myself the vowels in my head, and then you just put them in place. Because there's it's just O's and U's. Mm. So you just got to put it in. I'm not going to go into the little sing song that I did in my head to be able to spell it properly. It's horrifying that I've admitted this, but maybe I'll, maybe I'll post a picture of him so you can see. You're gonna. Cause yeah. we always, we always have to post, uh, Blanche's dreams. Of course. That's just how this works. Um, so January 31st, uh, the night before she was meant to check out, 
Elisa runs into the lobby, throws her hands up in the air and yells, I'm crazy, but so is L.A. So I don't know how soon that was after being ejected from this live taping. And then over the years, the manager, Amy Price, who was just something else, she said she'd seen some things. So seeing something like that just wasn't concerning to her. She said the police were usually called at least three times a day from the hotel so this event didn't even phase her. She didn't even think to consider it anymore. Right. Amy Price was the Cecil manager from 2007 to 2017. And in her time, she said that there had been thousands of calls to 911 from the Cecil Hotel. I would not last a week in that job if it was like, oh, I guess we're calling 911 again. No, thank you. Yeah, and to play the other side for a second, I don't envy that she had to do that job. I just think she was a no. little blasé about about their whole... To me, it's just, I do feel like they misled people. I do. I, I and, yes. and listen, come Agreed. at me if you want to. I, 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 I'm just, you know what? You know what? Christy got me this for my birthday. I've got my little judge's gavel, and guess what? <laughs> That's my verdict. They misled people. There you go. I love that the gavel... Is just a permanent part of the show now. It's part of my setup. It's part of my podcast setup now. I need to figure out how I can get a True Crime and Cocktails logo on a robe. Leave that with me. For you. Well, for both of us. You know? Yeah. Come on. Also, while on her trip, Elisa was checking in with her family every single day. But January January 31st is the last time that her family heard from her. Mm. So she does disappear... I am, I shouldn't have moved my table. I'm all confused. But I wondered, should we take a quick pee break before we get into her disappearance? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. All right. You heard the lady. Go get your drink. Go to the bathroom. <laughs> and we'll be right back to hear more about the very mysterious disappearance of Elisa Lamb. What's up, everybody? This is Lauren Ash, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. A couple of quick reminders. If you're looking for any of the visuals Christy mentions in this or any of our episodes of the podcast, make sure to follow us at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram. There she posts a case file with all the relevant visuals for each episode of the show. If that's not enough for you, you want a little bit more, go to our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. There, Christy posts extensive virtual case files. This is literally everything she finds in her research it's a treasure trove of deep dives and it's all there for your enjoyment also on the website you can find our full unedited zoom episodes of the show if you'd like to watch rather than listen and make sure to give us a follow on facebook at true crime and cocktails twitter at not detectives and the most important piece of information if you like the show please wherever you listen to it give us a nice rating go on to apple leave us a nice review i know it sounds like a silly cliche but the truth is it really goes a long way in this crazy podcast world and your support means the world to us but enough about all that get yourself another drink sit back and enjoy the rest of the show Welcome back to True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. Of course, we are talking about Elisa Lamb, the very mysterious case that, of course, took place in the Cecil Hotel. All right. So when we left off, we were about to get into her, the specifics of her disappearance. Yeah. So on the night of the January 31st, she gets moved to her own private room. Right. Uh, the morning of February 1st, she was supposed to check out, 
When she didn't, the staff checked her room, noticed that all of her belongings were still there, including like wallet, passport, laptop. The room was messy, but didn't look like a struggle of any kind had happened. And it didn't look as though she had slept in the bed. Oh. So police did a search of the rest of the building. They looked in every room, basement, all of that. Couldn't find a thing. They brought in search dogs who tracked her scent on the fifth floor where she was staying to a window that faces the street where they lost the scent. Uh, Since there was a fire escape outside the window, the police took the dogs to the roof to search, but found nothing. As per hotel protocol, they uh, bagged her possessions uh, with the plan to uh, keep them for 30 days. Because you never know, right? She may have just like left without officially checking out. They have no idea, but it's weird that you would just leave all your stuff behind. It also seemed, and, and tell me if this is correct or incorrect, the way the documentary made it seem was that they had they had bagged her stuff before there was like the realization that she was missing, like before the police came. That's the way it sounded. And I was like, it seemed a little odd to me that like if somebody doesn't check out within a few hours of their checkout time, you're just bagging up. Like she had prescriptions, prescription medication, her laptop. Like this just felt like, to me, it felt a little premature yeah. to like start bagging everything up. Like I would call the police. It Well, it makes me wonder, is that like, do they get that a lot where people are like, I'm going to leave before checking out so that I don't have to pay. I don't know if you have to pay in advance or not. Is it just, do they get that kind of thing all the time? It's tough to say, but again, like it seems like everything she had with her, she left in that room. So it just feels weird. But again, if they're looking for turn around the room, they've got to get her shit out so they can get it clean so they can then put somebody else in that room. I guess then my next question is, how busy was the stay on Maine? Like, I guess it was popping at this point. Like, that's wild to me. Well, I mean, they were obviously, they obviously had the spare room that they could stick her in at the last minute. Exactly. I don't know. But, like, that just, that that bumped me. I just was like, it felt very quick. To me, if yes. it was like they came in, it was a mess, and there was like some items, okay. But the fact that it was, there was prescription medication in her laptop, if it were me, I would go, oh, this person has is out and they're running right. behind and they're going to they have an intention to come back and sure. get these things or we have a problem. Like to me, it's like it's not just like yeah. this person skipped out, you know, on paying and has left all of their worldly possessions, passport, laptop. You know what I mean? Like it just right. felt like a weird call on the on the part of the hotel. I'm coming up I... really hard against the hotel. <laughs> Well, I get the feeling based solely on the interviews with the manager, Amy. Yeah. It just feels like she is really, by that point, totally desensitized to kind of anything. Yeah. Because it feels like, well, if you're going to do this job, you kind of have to. Because if they're making multiple calls to 911 a day, after eight years... Like, she was there for 10, but, like, even after, even half the time, you'd be like, oh, here we go again. Yeah. Like, if you're making that many calls, seeing crazy things probably isn't that crazy to you anymore. And so you're like, oh, well, she left everything. Okay. She was probably in the moment trying to, like, make a, make a, sta- make an example, right? Like, sure. you're five minutes late, we bag up your shit. And then it's like, well, you just also wildly disturbed a crime scene, so... <laughs> yeah yeah i mean 
I also find it interesting that did she put together that this was the girl that screamed I'm crazy in the lobby like the night before like is that not is she not like oh that's weird that was her great like, question realizing that it's like okay maybe this is something we need to look into further but to your point I guess again that I guess maybe her maybe she just truly didn't care at this point she's seen it all and then some and she's like eh, it is what it is it's more than possible yeah I'm also very curious, very quickly before you continue, this is a random thought, but like going to a taping in Burbank, Burbank is a trek from where she is downtown. Um, And uh, if you have a car, it's a bit of a trek. But certainly I'm assuming, and maybe I shouldn't, and I don't know if we know this or not, but if she didn't have a car, if she was relying on like transportation, I don't even know, it could take you four hours. Like I don't even know how you would do that. And 2013, L.A., that's pre-Uber. I guess you could take a cab. It would be very pricey. So I also am just curious about, like, how was she getting around? Did she have a rental car? Did someone drive her? Or was she transiting? Because transit, I mean, again, it's not impossible, but it's that's a, that's a day. Like, if you're going from downtown right. L.A. to, again, not impossible, but just, just something to throw out there. I mean, my only experience with buses in L.A., is speed is is speed <laughs> and i could not be more excited to organically bring it up every episode if possible it's nice because because then i just think of keanu in that outfit with like a gun strapped to his thigh which you know is a thing that i have which is weird anyhow yeah, yeah. Um, anyway back to yeah, as far as i course. know i don't believe like i never heard anything of her having a rental car yeah, so, I didn't either. I was just curious about that because it could also, and listen, who, who knows if they're even looking into this or not, but it could also be if she got a ride with someone else, like was she, again, did she meet someone? Did someone take her? It's just that that was something that was also like, because yeah. again, when you live in LA, you become keenly aware of like the distance between places, how long it's going to take you. Like it's just a constant, like like that SNL had a, the sketch they used to do, the Californians, is real. Yeah. Like, people talk about freeways. You talk about how long it took you to get somewhere. Like, it is a very specifically L.A. thing to do. So I did start to think about that. I'm like, gosh, right downtown, all the way downtown, all the way to Burbank. Again, not impossible, but just something to think about. In terms of, like, trying to piece together her last, you know, 24 hours of her, being seen. Yes. How, yeah. Kind of where she would have been and what she would have been doing. And who with yeah. who. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Again, so it's that background experience that you bring to the table. I'm trying. You know? I'm really trying. So they bag up her stuff. Yeah. And then her, she doesn't call her parents that day. Yes. And so I'm assuming by that point, her parents were like, oof, not caring for that. Yeah. Contact the hotel, put some pressure on them. Police come in. Uh, police check through the security footage. There was no camera on the fifth floor where she was staying. Um, so they went through days of footage because there's multiple elevators each one has a camera there's cameras in the lobby and they just went through all these videos waiting to for the one moment they see her on the screen and then they find a four minute video from february 1st of elisa in the elevator now i will post this video um it'll be on the virtual case file on truecrimecocktails.com i will try and post it to social media as well because it if you haven't seen it it there is something 
for lack of better wording, there is something really off about the entire thing. The elevator doors open and you see her enter the elevator. She presses a button and then moves to the corner. Seems really calm, like she's just waiting for the elevator to move on. And then she suddenly like steps to the elevator door and then she looks out both ways into the hallway and then like quickly comes back in. And then she presses all the buttons down the middle row of the uh, panel and then the elevator doors are still open and then she just like ends up walking out and going to the left. And then the elevator eventually closes and then that's it. So people online like... After she was missing for a certain amount of time, the the police had a press conference six days after she went missing. And then on February 15th, they released the security cam footage just to like see if anybody can kind of help with that. And then the online sleuths just attacked it. They tried analyzing this thing. Some people admitted to watching it like a thousand times to try and pick up on some sort of clue to be able to figure out what happened to her based on the buttons that she hit when you hit a button if it doesn't light up that means that's the floor you're on so by that by that moment they figured out she was on the 14th floor even though she was staying on the fifth the first button she hit when she got in the hotel or in the elevator was the hold door which somebody went in and timed it and once you press that button The door remains open for two minutes, which is why the door stays open that entire time. People had thought maybe somebody was holding the door button on the outside of the elevator. Maybe somebody was chasing her, that sort of thing. Uh, The the video timestamp is weird because it's like blurred out and there's marks over it so you can't fully see it. And then some of the video is edited. People found that it's about 30 to 40% slowed down. And there seems to be 53 seconds missing of footage. But the hotel claims they just, they found the footage, gave it immediately to the police. The police say they didn't do anything. So we don't have a clue who did anything. But there's very clearly like a chunk of time missing. And we have no idea if someone had come in and they cut that part out so they wouldn't be seen. Now, I was surprised, and I don't know if you've found this or looked for it. I forgot to look for it, but I thought they might show a sped up version of the tape because they said it was slowed down, right? Yeah. No, they never did. And they never did. And I don't know if that's, I'm assuming that's with all the trouble people have gone to that that must exist somewhere. No? You would think so because it was such a big thing when it came out that people were like, it slowed down. And by being slowed down, it makes her movement seem that much creepier and like that much weirder. Whereas if it was sped up, it probably would just be like, okay, well, she's she's kind of bopping around. She's waiting for the elevator. She's a little antsy, whatever, can't sit still. But otherwise it wouldn't be, it's the slow, awkward movements she makes, but because it's slowed down. It seems that much weirder, but every copy that I have come across, I'm sure there are many more, but everything I found was all the exact same footage. Interesting. That she, they found this footage early February, mid February, there is still no sign of her. And then some guests in the hotel start complaining about the water. There was really shitty water pressure. Um, The water that was coming out of the taps was discolored and brown and the water just had a really funny taste to it, which I think is some of the worst part of this, uh, to it, no pun intended, to ingest yeah. uh, in this whole thing. So after multiple complaints, 
On February 19th at 10 a.m., a maintenance worker is sent to check and see if there's a clog somewhere in the pipes. He checks the water tanks on the roof. There are four 1,000-gallon tanks. They're approximately 10 feet tall. He takes a ladder up, and he sees there's a hatch open on one of the tanks. He looks inside, and he finds the body of Elisa Lamb floating naked, face up. The tank is about half to three-quarters full at this point. So the maintenance worker finds the body. He goes downstairs, goes immediately to Amy, the manager, and the first thing that Amy does calls her own mother because as she said I wanted to call my mother and tell her something was about to happen and then she called police now I understand you, you find a body that has obviously been there for a while there's obvious decomposition so there's no hiding that she is dead there's no saving her the police getting there five minutes earlier isn't going to do anything but I just find it shocking that that was her first thought maybe she was worried that her mother would find like there's news cameras and then there's police and they found a body and maybe she thought her mother would see that and then worry it was her or something. It just felt really weird to be like, first thing I did, oh, I called my mother. It felt, and then I called police. It, yeah, it felt to me like she was trying to prove that she was super honest. Like, because to me, when you're telling that story... It would be some people's instinct, even if that was what you knew you did, it would be some people's instinct to say, oh, I called the police. But it was like yeah. she wanted to show that, like, she was like, I'm going to tell you everything exactly how it happened. And how it happened was I called my mother and then I called the police. And it's like, you've just made yourself sound not trustworthy because yeah. I would want to believe if I was staying in a hotel and my body was found or I was in some sort of terrible danger that the first call you make would be to the police. Because, again, the police don't show up in five seconds you would think that once she hung up from the police she would have a couple minutes that she could make that call to her mother you would think so because because there was like we have a body it's not we have an emergency situation you need to get here you don't normally i don't think you would stay on the line so I it's like i need so. police here this is the issue hang up then call your mom and be like oh mama shit's going down yeah and and also yeah. that call that phone call to your mother does doesn't need to be long Hey, yeah. remember that case that's going on? We just found her body. Can't talk about it. I'll call you later. That's a that's yeah. a five second phone call. And I guess yeah. in her mind again, she thought that that was I don't know. It, it, again, her her manner it, it just all felt a little odd. It also makes you wonder: Is it just like her mother loves to hear the gossip of what goes down at the hotel? Mm. And so it was like, oh, get this: Could we be. found her body. Which is even more gross to think of how long then it took before her own family knew about it. Yeah. And that this stranger gets to be the first phone call feels... Well, and at the end of the day, I'm just going to say it, I think it's unprofessional. I, I don't think that oh, that's a professional yeah. thing to do. And, and she was talking at great length about how much she valued this job and believed in, in, the, in the hotel and all. Like, she, she seemed to carry herself in a way that she really believed in what they were doing and all of the above. And it's like, yeah. like a good company woman. And I don't know. It's again, like to me, that's just a little off. She's a little bit Jan from the office, mm. you know, a little too corporate mind frame, not enough human. 
but then also makes a weird decision to call her mother first. Like, I don't know. She's oh, just a- Jan would do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> making that assumption i don't know that for sure listen i I trust you i trust you this is the part of the documentary where blanche comes to play not that she hasn't come in the episode already of course uh she comes out all the time but in this part i was so excited because now they're bringing in a homicide detective named greg kading now some of you may have recognized the detective. I know I did, and I got very excited because he was in both of the docs that I watched a couple weeks ago for the Tupac episode. I have learned since he wrote the book Murder Rap, which is what the Murder Rap doc was based on, and that one was my favorite. So I was even more excited to find out that he was in this involved in this case. Honestly, it was like it was like seeing a coworker. You know, like I came to work after like a long weekend. I'm sitting at the water cooler. There's a body. We're going to need to talk about this info. And in comes this guy, Greg, that it's like, hey, there's my buddy, Greg. How was your weekend? How are the wife and kids? Let's talk about this nasty business, huh? It's just nice. It was nice to see a familiar face while working the case together. Together. He was not with me. Well, I mean, it's rare in in what we're doing that I feel like that happens. So I love that. And as a fan of... You get a lot of overlap. Yeah. And as a fan of of murder rap and all those things, I love it. I think that's great. It's it's interesting also to remember that people that you see working these cases, that they don't just work one case in their life. They they work, you know, constantly. So, of course, it makes sense that, you know... Right? It makes sense. But you don't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. In the murder rap... He commented about like he was given his choice, which after the biggie task force he was part of, he was given his choice. Where are you going to go? And he chose to go to homicide. And it was just nice to see him in his leather coat. He's kind of an attractive older gentleman. Here we go. And it's just it was it was nice. It was nice. it. It was a familiar face, a face I don't hate looking at. And it was just nice. And I was just like, there he is. There's our guy. So it was just nice to have someone familiar in there because then I felt like I had an insider working the case for me. I don't. <laughs> don't know him personally. Not yet I don't. Detective Kading. Uh, I love your work. I, I should love read it. his book. Not the point. You should. The big question here about Elisa is how the hell did she get on the roof? Right. So there is a set of stairs inside the building that leads right up to the roof the door that you'd have to go through to get to the roof sounds an alarm when it's opened and it requires a key. There is, however, every single window on outside the building has a fire escape and you could just keep climbing the fire escape from the ground floor if you want and then when you get to the top, there's a ladder that takes you right up to the roof and you could do it that way, which is terrifying to think about that somebody could do that and easily just open a water and put whatever they want in it when people are drinking that water. I think since then they have put locks on it, but at the time they it wasn't necessary, which feels frightening. But even if she was going to use the fire escape all the way up, it's like the tank that she was found in was they were they were kind of set two by two 
And she chose the one that was like the closest to the edge of the building. So she would have had to like squeeze in between the tanks, which she was very tiny, so doable, but walk on a bunch of pipes to get to the ladder, to get up to the hatch, and then go over more pipes just to get to the hatch. So it was not an easy tank to choose if she chose to get in a tank herself. I'm curious why that one, that was easily the most difficult one to get in. Right. Or if someone was going to put her in there, it's the most difficult one to access. Right. Were they just hoping that, did somebody put her there and thought, I'll pick the one where it's less likely someone's going to go into it? Who knows? Yeah. You know? But then also, why not put the lid back on? That's the question. And that was the other thing throughout the documentary. They, they, police had immediately been like, well, as far as we know, when the police arrived, the hatch was closed. And then it did come out later on that the maintenance worker was like, no, when I found it, it was open. That's why I thought to check that one because it was open. Otherwise, who knows if he would have looked. I would like to think he would have. But it's just, I didn't want to drag it out and be like, well, yes. and then it was closed and then be like, but it wasn't, you know, I, <laughs> I didn't want to do a big dramatic thing. I just want to give the people the info right away so that I have time to stop in and be like, oh yeah, that guy's face, huh? What a, what <laughs> you're a, prioritizing. Listen, what, I get it. What a, I like it. What but a yeah, it's, it's, woman. it's, yeah, gosh, it's such a, it's so confounding. It's so weird. So all right, we found her. The lid is off. It's the hardest tank to get to. What's yes. next? Her clothing, her shoes, hotel key card, and her watch were all found in the tank with her. There were no marks on her body, no signs of trauma, uh, toxicology, no alcohol, no illegal drugs. She had been taking four drugs for a diagnosed bipolar disorder, uh, but the levels in her body were so low that the Emmy believes she was under medicating. Mm. The other problem is, I mean, she, her body was potentially in that tank for like 18 days. Right. So like she was badly decomposed by the time they found her. So getting like blood samples wasn't good. They had to go like heart, liver, that kind of thing. And it just seemed like, I guess the, the amount of medication in her system could be maybe slightly off. Right. Like the pills that she had, like they will list what on the, in the autopsy report, which I will also post, they list what medication it is, how many, like when it was prescribed, how many pills were given in it, how many pills are remaining. So you kind of get an idea as to how many would have been taken. Right. Two of the four pills she had more remaining than what she was originally given. Oh. So then it's like, was she getting this from somewhere else while she was in town? Or my thought is, she's going on this trip. She's going to be gone for probably multiple weeks. Did she, like, we know they don't fill a prescription bottle all the way to the top. Did she take a new prescription, dump an old prescription on top of it? So that she only had to take so many bottles with her. So then it's even so, more difficult to try and estimate. Exactly. Right. Because we have no idea how many she could have taken. Right. But the Emmy believes she was probably under medicating. Okay. Cause of death was ruled accidental drowning. Although the Emmy also feels that her bipolar was a contributing factor. And possibly hypothermia. 
because at that point, like the temperature was dropping at night and she's in like a tank of water that's probably not the warmest. And then it comes down to like, well, when she was found, she was naked. So if she's in this tank and then she's going through hypothermia, why would she take her clothes off? Well, people in the final stages of hypothermia go through paradoxal undressing because their nerves are damaged and they start losing rationality and they start feeling incredibly and irrationally hot. So if, if you find someone who's getting hypothermia, like out in the middle of the wilderness, you can tend to find them. You just follow the trail of their clothing because once hypothermia sets in they start just peeling stuff off and leaving it behind them so like it's their attempt to to cool themselves down even though they are essentially freezing to death right so that could be why right so there there is a lot (laughs) to unpack yeah so there is a thing called synchronicity It was introduced by Carl Jung. It's a concept that claims that events are meaningful coincidences if the events seem to be related, but they actually aren't. Right. There are so many in this case, which I think is why people kind of get driven crazy by everything happening in this case. Uh, For example, there is a movie called Dark Water. In 2003, the movie came out. It was a Japanese horror movie. In 2005, there was an American remake uh, released. In the movie, a mother and her daughter move into an older building. And at one point, black water starts to come out of the taps. Very similar as to what happened at the Cecil. The little girl dies in the water tank on the roof of the building and is wearing a red jacket just like Elisa was in the video. So people then wondered, like, did Elisa do this to, like, copy this video? Did somebody kill her and make it, like, specifically stage it to look like something out of this movie? I mean, good Lord, who knows what's going on. So another synchronicity, people started thinking government conspiracy. Right. There was... Uh, Just days before her body was found, there was a massive tuberculosis outbreak amongst the homeless people in Skid Row. More than 4,600 people were exposed. Uh, There was a test that could detect tuberculosis. It was called Lam Elisa. Spelt the same, just switched her name around. So that in itself is fucking bananas. Like, what are the odds? And then it comes out that the Center for Tuberculosis Research is at the University of BC where Elisa was recently a student. So like the layers in that, of course people are screaming conspiracy because that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So then people's, people started thinking, okay, so Elisa was a bioweapon being used by the government to deplete the LA homeless population. And it's like, okay, okay sure. And I agree, the thing that catches me the most is the name Lam Elisa. What are the odds? Well, not to disappoint anyone, but the test Lam Elisa was first introduced in 2007. The story we are talking now is 2013, so this was long before. This was when she was still in high school. 
So she would have nothing to do with the name of it or she wouldn't have been in the university where uh, they're a big research center. Also, and forgive me because this, this, this is where she earns her keep. Lam Elisa actually stands for, oh, heaven help me, uh, lipoarabinomannan is lamb, and enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay is ELISA. So it's just the craziest of coincidences, but like, it's bananas. But yeah. I did just like a quick search of lamb ELISA. I got that and went, oh, well, then that makes sense to me. I also pray I never say or have to try and say another. I hope I don't have to butcher another name like that ever. And again. I mean, I guess you could say like, was the government? Did the government choose her to be this bioweapon because she happened to have this name? Like, is that oh, how she got chosen to be the bioweapon? But then to that, I would say, is the government gonna choose someone who? Do you know what I mean? Like, if the government be, is gonna yeah. implement a bioweapon, <laughs> then to me. They would want to pick something, someone with a name that's far away from it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, that could what, lead them right there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's so, I mean, listen, anything in the grand scheme of anything being possible, anything is possible. But sure. I hear you that it just, it does feel like a wild coincidence. Like, what are the chances? Yeah. And I really just want to believe that the government isn't sitting out there reading through all the birth announcements, waiting just fingers crossed for a baby to be born of the same name that they've chosen. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't know how it worked out this time, but it's like, and then they just lied and wait for years knowing that, you know, they were going to link her to it. I, the point is, I don't think it has anything to do with it, but it is bananas yeah. that it is that close. Uh, and, so, that the, uh, and that it was based out of the University of British Columbia where she went. Yeah. I mean, is there still a possibility that in some wild world there was some sort of, sure. you know, some person had come up with this idea and had convinced her to be a part of this because of her crazy coincidental name and she agreed to it and her outburst in the in the hotel lobby that day, I'm crazy but so is LA, is her going like, I can't believe I agreed to this, some sort of guilt and she killed herself out of guilt for agreeing to be a part of this experiment or whatever. I mean, Possible? maybe the whole point, maybe that was the goal, was to get, go and contaminate the water source. Possible. I can't really focus on the water source part. because It's it, awful. Like, they even interviewed in that documentary people who were there at the hotel at that time and were like, I can't even describe the taste. And I'm like, has it sunk into your brain yet? I don't think they want it to. Because, well, I guess you have to, you have to protect yourself mentally and just, you do what you got to do to survive, right? Yeah. I guess the only other thing I'll say to that, that theory is if she was carrying tuberculosis herself, then in the autopsy yeah. there, that would have shown up. Yes. The only way that this would have happened is if the, she literally like released it into the air or into water or into like, like if she was carrying, do you know what I mean? Like she would have had right. to be carrying samples that she somehow got out there but again this is really this is a huge amount of conspiracy that i think yeah. ultimately it probably just was a wild coincidence but again you know right well you never know right? you never know yeah. 
so there's another one where dealing with the last bookstore. While she was in LA, she visited uh, the last bookstore. Their website was registered by a private company who is based in Burnaby, BC, where she's from. The postal code for the company is when you enter it on Google Maps, the pin for it is the cemetery where Elisa is buried. I don't fully understand how that works because when you look at their address, it's not the same postal code. So I don't know if somebody went in after and did like a hack of some sort to change that around as like a their own little ghoulish Easter egg or something because this is the last bookstore she ever went to kind of garbage. Yeah, that one you know? sounds to me like if we're, yeah, that one just sounds to me like someone hacked in and did a extremely poor taste, you know, whatever you want to call it, prank yeah. or, or whatever you want, however you want to label it. Because again, what was the last book? How was the last bookstore involved? Does this conspiracy continue to say how, like why they wanted her dead? Like there's no other connection, no. right? So to me, it's like this was only discovered obviously after she died because the postal code is the cemetery. Yeah. So that one to me, that's probably just a computer person who's good at computers who, like people can I do assume. that shit, right? Like, oh, they have to. Yeah. So many things are possible with a computer that I can't even begin to grasp. I, I've heard <laughs> that they're quite extensive. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the most Nana thing I've ever mm -hmm. said, where I'm like, ooh, those computers, they're capable of so many things. They I don't do know so what much. accent I'm suddenly doing. Suddenly I'm a bit Irish. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, like I don't it. know. I don't know what happens. This is this is what happens when I try and do a character without practicing first. Weird accents come out. My children try and do weird accents and bless their hearts, they can't. I have one child who every time he goes to do an accent, he, he sounds like the Mario Brothers, but to him that's a British accent and it's like, oh, ah. that's painful. And then he's like, oh, you want me to be Italian? And then it turns Jamaican and it's like, oh, I just can't help you. I can't. Maybe I need to put him in modeling classes. You know, because modeling classes helped you. Yeah. So maybe modeling classes will help him with accents. Maybe I should look more for like acting classes. Well. <laughs> you know, but if modeling got you there. But listen, it sounds like he's got some confidence. Oh, that is something he does not lack. Yeah. <laughs> He's got confidence for days, which is exhausting, but good for him. It is good. That is yeah. what you want. Yeah. All right. Oh, so another synchronicity, because it just keeps going. There is a guy named Pablo Vergara, who is a death metal singer with the stage name Morbid. Yes. He says that it is... Uh, his physical representation of my dark subconscious because he's so tortured. Uh, well, he will be. Yeah. So he released a video shortly after Elise's death depicting uh, a woman being chased and then murdered. So people were like, is this a clue that he's admitting to what he's done? Uh, he'd previously posted a video called China about a girl dying in water and then it came out he had stayed at the Cecil Hotel. Well, 
His stay at the Cecil was a year before Elisa stayed there. He wasn't even in the country when she died. But online sleuths did not give a shit. They didn't care if he had an alibi or not. They felt he was responsible, so they flagged his accounts. His YouTube, Facebook, and email all get shut down. He's received threats. At that point, he just gave up on music entirely because he just couldn't handle people anymore, which I find wildly fascinating that this guy who's like, I'm a tortured soul, it's so dark, when he actually starts getting like mentally tortured, he's like, I can't take it. I did find his segments in the documentary very interesting as well because I, to me, and listen, I want to preface this by saying absolutely no one on the planet deserves death threats on the internet. Not condoning it. Not okay. But it was interesting to me because his whole thing was talking about death and killing and wanting to die and wanting to kill and he had lyrics about that stuff and... And, you know, he had the blood on his face and all those kinds of things. And it was just very interesting to me that I was like, again, I'm not saying he deserved it. I have to make that clear. But my question to him would be, you know, we, we, you were putting a lot of that into the world. You were putting a lot of yeah. energy into death and torture and all of those things. And it did come back to you. Again, if I was the therapist here... <laughs> And that's if I was Morbid's therapist, you know, I I just think it's like it's just interesting because one would think that some people in that position would have welcomed the death threats that he would have been like, you know, this is all part of my shtick, my deal. Like, yes, like I live for this. You know, he's got Ted Bundy pictures of Ted Bundy behind him and the Black Dahlia in that one video. And again, I just I just felt like. I have compassion. He didn't deserve the death threats. But ultimately, I was just like, it was just very interesting to me that I was like, you know, I just found him very interesting. That that, that for someone who was really, you know, putting that out there in a very kind of extreme way, that it was, you know, the way he, he reacted when it came back to him was fascinating. Yes, I agree. I mean, I, uh, bullies are the worst. Of course. Online bullies, I know that they can just be relentless. But yeah, there is something about a guy who's just like, I love death. I love it all. This is my dark subconscious. I love it. And then they're like, oh yeah, we think you murdered someone. You're a murderer. And he's just like, I'm not. Guys, guys, stop it. (laughs) Like it, it felt like a real turnaround. But again, I shouldn't say that because he was probably getting harassed quite a lot more, but it's just, I find it fascinating that for somebody who is like so deep in this, like, I like it dark. I like death. It felt like that was the persona he put out there only to be like, it was just a full facade. He had no, no, no interest in it whatsoever. It was just his gimmick to put out in the world and then when it came back to him he was just like no I don't like that yeah I mean again you know having a video where you're you know chasing a woman who's terrified to seemingly murder her and those kinds of things yeah all of those things you know it's it is surprising like again I I guess I was just surprised that he wasn't like living for that attention in in that um, publicity and yeah because it's all in the same wheelhouse it's all in that same world and I guess for him it was just very different it was like no I want to be free to talk about murdering women and and sing about you know whatever and my inner 
my inner demons and all of those things. Yeah. And and I get it. I mean, I guess that that's that's what is, you know, real for him and and that's his own journey, but it is just fascinating. Agreed. Yeah. There were rumors that Richard Ramirez conducted satanic rituals on the roof while he stayed at the hotel. Uh-huh. And so the theories are like, well, the hotel and now the roof is haunted. I don't know, but I feel, and in my best, oh, if I'm going to do my best, I've got to adjust. Oh, yeah. In my best anchor, my best TV anchor, we're going to throw it live to Lauren, the uh, Richard Ramirez expert, for her thoughts on this. Lauren, uh, what can you tell us about Richard Ramirez and any uh, theories involving uh, Elisa Lamb? Thanks so much for asking, Christy. I'm so glad you asked. Now, dear listeners, I said to Christy before we started this, we're 20 plus episodes deep of this thing, okay? If you're still listening, I feel like you you like us, okay? And I feel like you trust me, and I, I've earned that trust, and I value that trust. But I'm asking you to come with me on a journey right now. <laughs> I'm asking you to come with me on a journey. Just come with yeah. me. Okay? I'm not asking you to, to, you don't have to, just just hear me out is what I'm saying. Yeah. Because I know that what I'm about to say is batshit. Okay? <laughs> I know. But, okay. I teased this a little earlier because one of the things, and I have said this long before I watched this documentary, the Lisa Lamb one. I do truly believe that there is an evil to Richard Ramirez and he was yeah. so into Satanism and whether you, what, whatever your personal beliefs are about religion, spirituality, all of those things, energies, I personally definitely believe in energies. I believe in good and evil and I personally would never mess with that stuff. Like, like to me, it's just like, I don't know. I'm not going to mess with it. He was somebody that was extremely into he talked about wanting to have Satan inside of him, about welcoming Satan into his life. The way, the same way that people talk about like accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he would talk in that same way about having Satan in his life. Like Satan was a huge part of his life. And I really do believe, this is where I'm asking you to go with me. You know that I'm usually fairly reasonable. No. I believe he might have been possessed by a demon. Hear me out. I only could research this so far because I freaked myself out so badly. So, bear with me. But, of course he had this childhood, and of course, of course. But, as I've said, I believe there was an evil to him that you could see in his eyes. I believe that there was something about him that sets him apart, again, from a lot of the other serial killers that we know about. The randomness, the vile ways that he would kill people. It was it was very it was chaotic that he did horrible things and I don't want to get into all of them because it's it's so bad but there was the one thing that made me kind of the the moment that I was like is he possessed was the moment in the Night Stalker documentary when they talked about the the couple in San Francisco that he killed and he killed them and then he went and had a snack he threw up all over the kitchen and then he ejaculated in the living room and that to me. When I think about possessions and, and those kinds of things, not that I know that much about them, I was like, it just felt demonic to me. And, and, and there's so much of like, if you see the footage of him, I get unsettled. I, I think he was possessed by a demon. And here's where I'm going. 
All of the people who survived Richard Ramirez talked about the smell. They said that it was like, it was so overpowering. People compared it to like a barnyard animal. They said it was like, it was something that like was so overwhelming and it hit you. Like it was like when people talked about when they were recounting these stories, the smell was something that was something that came up with a lot of, of his survivors. And that really spoke to me. As did, people, of course, talked a lot about his teeth. Now, I'm wondering if his teeth may have been a birth defect thing because his mom, of course, all the kids had the birth defect. Right. So that, to me, kind of maybe went there. But going back to the smell, I started to, to dig into demons. And one of the things that you, that again, I, I don't want, didn't want to read very much because it freaks me the fuck out. But one of the things is that people do talk about possessions having like a sulfur smell, an eggy smell, a very overpowering, again, if you believe in this stuff, that that can be a sign of a negative entity. So that's my first thing. The next thing is when he was dying in prison of cancer, multiple people talked about how his skin had turned bright lime green. And obviously when people go into liver failure, it is not uncommon for you to turn yellow. You become jaundiced, your eyes, your skin yeah. yellow. But people repeatedly, and this is something that I've read, uh, many accounts of people who worked in the prison at the time, they all remarked, they were like, no, he was green. So then I started to look into that. And there have been different accounts of people who do believe that they have had experiences with demons or had images of demons. And then just lore. I read a little bit about demon lore, and there is a lot. There was one kind of description that was made, and it talked about a demon that had a green face and long stringy black hair and that's when I closed my laptop because I was like I believe that I'm onto something here so go with me again I know I know I know we're really it's we're going for it but riddle me this what if okay, oh, oh and one of the other cases was talking about like a green slime like again green was a common color that was associated with this so so go with me on this He's done these satanic rituals on the roof of the Cecil before. We know that Elisa was on the 14th floor, the same floor that Richard Ramirez stayed at when he was staying at the Cecil. We also sure. know that he has an affinity for Asian women. He killed a fair amount of them. And again, in prison, he was always requesting these photos of Asian women specifically in bikinis. What if... What if he was legitimately possessed by something evil? There was something inside of him, and part of the reason why he had this affectation to kill and do the terrible things he did was to appease this thing inside of him. And when he got into prison, it was like fighting with himself. It was, it was like a constant, when you couldn't feed it, it was making him sick. So this thing, it, it was giving him this cancer, which wasn't really cancer. It was the demon inside of him that isn't, playing he doesn't the, the demon isn't being fed he isn't getting his he's not killing he's not being able to do what demons do and so as he gets sicker and as it gets closer to the end what if Richard Ramirez slash the demon inside him he spent a lot of time alone in prison we know this he spent a lot of time drawing demons we spent a lot of time drawing knives all of these things what if he somehow managed to astral project himself to the Cecil to lure Elisa Lamb up to the rooftop to do one final kill. He lures her to get her in there, whatever. And then this like last bit, because he died shortly after she died. She died in February and he died, I think in June. It was a few months later. 
in the grand scheme of anything being possible. And that this being someone who was really into the satanic arts, I'm just saying. And that the, the you know, if we've learned anything from, you know, the Star Wars movies, not that they're into Satanism because they're not. But we see Luke astral project himself and it takes a lot out of him. And I'm just saying, like, is that was that the final straw? And then as he died, this greenness was was the demon releasing. Now, again, I recognize that this is, again, batshit fucking insane. And do I ultimately believe that this is 100% true and possible? Probably not. But in the grand scheme of, like, trying to figure out the mystery of this, it just feels like it's... Again, I really do believe he was evil. I think there was something evil around him. I think that he caused it where he went. I think that it was kind of like a scattershot. You know what I mean? I think that it f- evil sure. followed him. And I don't know. There was also talk about this elevator game. I don't know if you heard this. One of the conspiracies was that there's this game where if you get into an elevator and you push buttons in a certain order, you can go to another dimension. And if you're not careful, then you can get stuck in that dimension. So people also had a theory that maybe that was what was going on. So maybe she got stuck in the other dimension with Richard Ramirez and the demon that's living within him. Uh, it's crazy. To, I know to it's continue, crazy. To continue on with the uh, news anchor bit, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is the moment that I would be like, okay, <laughs> taking the paper, hitting it on the desk to, to organize them and be like, okay. Well, sorry we've lost the feed, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. And then some sort of ridiculous pun that I can't think of off the top of my head. And like, it would just be like an, oh, well, sometimes you get a little too much coffee, you know? And, uh, you know, well, stay tuned for cheers. <laughs> Coming up next, cheers. Ted Danson, love him. Oh, he's got a long career ahead of him. <laughs> I love that all of a sudden this is a new cast in the in the eighties. Anyway, no, it felt right. <laughs> now again, I, I wouldn't have been able to host in the eighties. Now again, let's uh, yeah. very quickly. Uh, of course, that is very extreme and and whatever and, and batshit. Sure, but but to dumb it down to something that maybe is a little more plausible, the fact that he did those satanic rituals on the roof. Do I believe that it's possible that there could have been a very evil negative energy in that space? I do. I do believe that. I do believe that that could have, and if somebody potentially is in a vulnerable state, I do also believe that, I believe in energy, personally, and I do think that, yes. you know what I mean? I do think that people can be influenced by those things. So I do think that there is something, I do think there's a neg- I think that there's an evil energy in that hotel. I mean, there has to be, good lord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is definitely something about there being, like, you just, if you go into a building, a room, something... And you suddenly get that weird gut feeling of like, I should not be here. I need to leave. Trust your gut because there is something, there can be a weird energy shift or something happening that you're picking up, like you're picking up on without realizing you are. And it's like, yeah, Yeah. nope, something is not right about it. And you can't be there. I get that. So I'm not discounting that. I think you did some great research on demons. I'm really proud of you for uh, going as far as you did. I don't know if I would have even gone that far. I don't think I would have, anybody would. I can't wait for the messages on this because my instinct is, is that people are going to be like, "We fu- you lost us. You've lost your mind. What are you thinking? But then there's part of me that thinks people are going to be like, you know what? Maybe. <laughs> I for, any also sci-fi, like- for any sci-fi fans, you know, I have a yeah. very large affinity for the X-Files and stuff like that. So once sure. in a blue moon, yeah, it comes out. Once in a blue moon. 
I mean, I don't know if I'm surprised or impressed that it took 22 <laughs> episodes for the, the term astral planning to, to come into play. <laughs> it um, is surprising. You're right. I also don't think I ever thought I was going to hear you say the words, so I've looked into demon lore. Those are other things that I did not anticipate on this, but mm -hmm. somehow feel like I should have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to thank you and I want to thank everyone for going on this journey with me. It means a lot. Again, I couldn't have done this week one. I And, and that's not lost on me. And I, I know that I can't do it again. And that's also not lost on me. That's okay. That's okay. I get one and I get that. Maybe in hey. 20 episodes I can come up with something batshit again. But I, I got that. It's cool. It's totally cool. I was going to say, well, we'll see what episode 44 is. <laughs> exactly. No, but all jokes aside, do I believe that there is a negative energy in that building? Yes, I do. Yes. Do I believe that somebody who's constantly, you know, trying to conjure evil could potentially draw negativity and energy? Yes, I do. Yeah. Do I believe that Richard Ramirez could have had a demon in him? I actually do. Do I think that he was astral planning? Probably not. Again, but but again, in this case, I was just like, wow, in the grand scheme of anything being possible. Yeah. I mean, the coincidences, again, we're back to like, why is this case so, why are there so many odd coincidences around this? Yeah. Wild. Yeah. All right. Do we want to get into, I know you've got a couple of real theories here uh, <laughs> that feel very grounded, which I know the people are begging for at this point. I mean... There was an online theory that this whole thing was just a big cover-up by the LAPD and the hotel because it took four months after the body was found for them to release an autopsy report. And to this day, they've never released the police report. They won't let anybody see it. So they kind of feel like that's weird because what would there even be in the police report? It's like we found the footage and that's about yeah. it. Like, there shouldn't be anything that oh, we, that is? we don't already know. So then people are like, is this a whole conspiracy? But you're going to love this. I don't believe Detective Kading would do anything wrong. <laughs> I've been blinded. I've been blinded. <laughs> it's just, I feel, again, I feel like he's a co-worker. I was immediately like, it's just nice feel like we're on the same team so my trust maybe is misplaced but immediately I'm like oh no I trust him well okay but let's to, to see the other side I have to go there because I've lost them with the demon astral planning no no I get it I get to it. go the other side though it does feel very strange to me that if this case is exactly what it seems like why wouldn't you release the report do they usually they they, they usually do right or, or like, I, I think you can get access to it. It's like public record. I think so, yeah. You know what that reminds me of? Washington Insider Murder, where they wouldn't release the autopsy report. And it was like, wait a minute, but you said, remember from, from the, the yeah. obviously from Unsolved Mysteries, and, and they were like, you know, he, he fell out of the dumpster, right? And, they, and then it was like, it was very cut and, it was made very cut and dry how they believed that he was killed, how he, or, or sorry, how he died. But yeah. then they refused to, release the autopsy report and it's like well if well if it's as cut and dry as you're saying it is why won't you release it it feels very much like that to me where yeah, it does still leave is, a big question mark which is also interesting that that was the case that was also the victim was bipolar yeah so there's something about that whereas are they using that to cover 
what really happened. Right. I mean. Are they using that as a, as a scapegoat or as an excuse when, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, and I know, I know we're going to get letters about it, but the other possibility, maybe she was going through a manic episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't seem like she was taking her medication. We don't know for sure how much medication she had on her at the time, but based on like what was found in her liver, which I did math on because they give it in like micrograms per gram. So then I had to find out the weight of her liver and then go from there. And it was, it was a thing, but, uh, I did math for this. You did liver <laughs> math, which I didn't I did. realize even existed. So kudos. Well, if we're going to do liver math, it may as well be on astral plating day. Thank you very much. So just off. This is the most off the rails I think we've ever been. Mm -hmm. So Uh there it is. But yet while being on the case. We're still hitting all the points. We're hitting all the facts. Yeah. Yeah. We're just really swaying to the different sides. This is what happens when you let me do a presentation about a serial killer. This is what happens. I go fucking nuts. I'm living for it. (laughs) I, I wish that... I could grade your report. I think it was a great job. And I'm upset that it's not on my desk with like one of those duotangs that has a color on the back, but the clear cover so that I can see your little cover that you've got going. A duotang is a Canadian uh, folder where you put like a three hole punch paper in. Do they not call them duotangs here? No, I don't think they even have them. I'm not here. Uh, You're you're here. (laughs) You're here in my heart. And I'm there. Again, we're astral planning right now. <laughs> well, when, well, when you put it that way, that I'm makes kidding. much more sense. I'm kidding. No, gosh. Um, oh, I'm, I'm going off the rails. Okay, yes. So, yes. So, it I is mean, possible. Again, you've done the math. You've, yes. you've measured the liver. What were your findings? Yes. I mean, there was so, there was not even close to what one dose for each of these medications. There was barely anything in her liver based on how much she should have had if she took the appropriate amount. So it's who knows how long she had gone without any. We don't know. Her sister had said that when Elisa uh, suffered from delusions, her instinct was to go somewhere and hide. Mm, Interesting. So maybe is it possible she was having delusions and then the weird movements we saw in the elevator video was her having some sort of episode and then she ended up going into the water tank the question is still again once she's up there she has to squeeze between the between the tanks she has to step on pipes which like they're rounded pipes so it can't be like the most easy thing to walk on and uh the hatch lid was about 20 pounds which is still doable but it's still like it was a struggle to get in there yeah but i mean if she was being manic and desperate to hide, she could have had adrenaline pumping through her body and lifting that off could have been uh, no problem at all. Right. But then, like, the... uh, I'm just torn as to which way I'm going about it. Because, I mean, first of all, I don't think the hotel manager was involved, but she's sketchy. She is. I think she's desensitized to everything, and she just came across really poorly, whether she meant to or not. And I know this isn't really the answer that people want to hear, but I think 
that the ME was probably pretty accurate. I think there was probably a hypothermia. I think she got into the tank potentially of her own free will. It is possible someone was with her and they lifted the thing and she got in and then they took off. We have no idea. We didn't see her with anybody else from the hotel, so we don't know for sure. I'm in no way an expert in any of these kinds of things, but the stuff that I've been reading about bipolar is it is all about extreme moods like euphoric highs and crippling lows. Mania can make you feel like your brain is racing, which can lead to little or no sleep. They said her bed appeared like she hadn't even slept in it, so it's possible she wasn't sleeping. And if you change your routine, that can cause an episode. She was traveling. We don't know what her sleeping and her eating patterns were like. So they were probably off from usual. And structure is incredibly important when trying to manage the episodes, plus regular sleep and being consistent with medication. And we don't know if she was doing either of those things. But I just, it's, again, it just seems crazy that she chose to go to that much effort to get to that tank. However, I've looked in at photos of inside the tank as best I can. And people keep saying like, well, she was in the water, but it was too low down for her to bother to be able to reach up. So if she reached up as high as she could, she couldn't reach the latch to get her or the hatch to get herself out. But to which I say, if she was in the water and was suddenly like, oh my God, I want to get out. You're going to see scratch marks on the inside of that tank where she is desperately clawing to try and get out. And you see this kind of thing where it's like there's fingernails, there's something where like the fingers are damaged from them like clawing and trying to get themselves out because they realize in a panic, oh my God, I'm trapped in here, I can't get out. But it just seems like there was no damage to the body except for like the usual kind of decomp. So it yeah. just feels, is it possible that she was having an episode? She went on the roof, she was hiding and she got in the water and was just like floating in the water, looking up the hatch up to the sky in her mind, doesn't realize she's in a water tank. And then hypothermia starts to set in. And so she's starting to feel really warm and starts taking clothes off. And before you know it, she just suddenly is like really tired and ends up drowning accidentally because it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any sort of proof that she tried to get out of it. Granted, I can't find the best pictures, but there's also nothing listed in the autopsy report to say anything of like damage to her hands of her trying to claw to get out like you would if you were trapped right you would think you yeah. Would think, yeah and I get that there is like a terrible stigma around mental illness in general but especially something like bipolar it's complicated there the symptoms are just they vary so widely that it's hard to know like the severity of the condition for each person but like it happens to people more than people would realize like famous people like Stephen Fry I mentioned earlier Carrie Fisher Patty Duke Richard Dreyfus. I had no idea but apparently in the 70s he was really going through some stuff got put on proper medication and just made a career because yeah. he was able to like keep things 
in check. So I am not in any way being like, oh, well, obviously that's what it is. But it just seems all of the behaviors we saw, I mean, she was freaking out. Every The girls who were staying in the room with her and writing them notes, telling them to go away and then wouldn't let them enter the room unless they had a password, which I don't know if that really feels like a 21-year-old. That feels more like something like an 11-year-old would do at a sleepover kind of thing. She wrote that weird note to the person at the TV studio and was like, I have to get this to them. And then they made her leave because they felt like she was a threat. And she went and made a big scene at the hotel lobby. So it's like she could have been going through some stuff. I just don't think I believe that it was foul play. I still don't. It's just it doesn't sit well with me how she got in that tank. Yeah. But now, what I'm are your thoughts? Con- what are your thoughts on the people that believe that that one image uh, on the elevator footage showed potentially another shoe outside? That there was another person outside the elevator? Because to me, it just looked like it was her foot. Yeah, like the way she was moving at some really weird angles. Like yeah. if you just keep watching the way she, like even her hand, she had it bent in different ways. So I feel like it was just. I think she went one way, but then turned really quickly. And so I think it was just probably her. Yeah. I don't think there was anybody. But again, there is a section of tape missing. Yeah. So how do we know? Why would there be tape missing if there was some, if there wasn't something on it that they didn't want people to see? And that's the biggest question to me. And, you know, do I automatically trust the police? No. Do I automatically trust the hotel? No. Do I think that it's possible that there was somebody else with her on that footage that they've cut out? Yes. Do I think it's possible that she got up to the roof through the stairs, through the door that required the key? Yes, I think that is possible. Sure. I think it's, you know, because would the alarm have gone off even if they had the key? I don't think so, right? Like the whole point is. is that- oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but even if still, if it's a maintenance person or something, they could they can easily dismantle or, or um, disengage the alarm. True, you know, I think at the end of the day, I, I, I mean, I can't. Yeah, it's hard to say if there was foul play or not, but I personally just don't think it can be ruled out. I don't think I've seen enough sure. to believe that it's a hundred percent one way or the other. Do I think that she was potentially going through something that maybe she wasn't? taking her meds at the right level or what have you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, the the science is there that it does appear that, you know, she didn't have the right amounts in her system, even given her body's, uh, the state of her body when it was found. But again, of course, we're not trying to suggest that that the bipolar is, oh, it was just bipolar and use it as a scapegoat as it does feel like perhaps the police uh, could. I do feel like, but, but the bottom line is, is that if she was going through something like that, I do believe that that does also make you vulnerable to people taking advantage of you and does make, you know, if she is having these kind of outbursts, yeah. she could piss somebody off again. She pissed off those roommates. She could also appear as an easy kind of target to to somebody who's maybe yeah. got some some bad intentions. What brought her to the 14th floor? Why was she in the elevator at the 14th floor, you know? There's a lot of, why did she push the door open button? Did she think she was pushing the door close button? There's a lot of unanswered questions, and, and I just don't know that I can be 100% sure that it... And I mean, I know that that it does feel like all the evidence points that way, but 
I don't know the, the, the if the general manager hadn't seemed like there's just so many factors where I'm like, I just don't know that I can 100 yeah. percent sign off on it personally, because I feel like. Do I think it's possible that that somebody who worked there could be involved? I do, because it really felt like that that manager, Amy, just the way that she talked about it. She just seemed like, you know, when she was talking about like, it's not a bad place. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. are you, do you really believe that, Amy? Because if you really believe that, that makes me think that you might be willing to cover some shit up. Like, it didn't, she didn't strike me as somebody who's seen, and, it, and the fact that she said, I called my mother and then I called the police, I was like, you're really trying to make us believe that you're telling us the God's honest 100% truth, which to me was a sign that she was lying, in my opinion. Sure. So I just think, yeah, I don't know. I think it's more than possible that the that the hotel were the ones to doctor that footage and that and that oh, somebody who sure. worked there easily could have gotten her on the roof. Could have and, and that's not to say that she didn't put herself in that tank, but I just don't know the 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 chain of events just feels like yeah, there's still some question marks and it's too bad that ultimately I just don't think we will ever really know. It's true. I mean, if she was to take the fire escape and she has to take a metal ladder to the top, she's also in like little strappy sandals and then walking on those pipes in those sandals and they the sandals were found in the tank with her. So it's not like she abandoned them at some point and then continued on. So, I mean, it is more than possible that there's some sort of foul play. I don't believe in the majority of the theories that everybody online seems to believe. Yeah. I don't think morbid had anything to do with it. No, I don't think no. she was a bioweapon. I love that I've already forgotten other theories that I've said, but whatever they were, also don't believe them. Uh, we'll run with that. But I is it possible that somebody at the hotel did something... It is possible. And then that they were gone. Final thought. Yes. Final thought because we got to wrap this up. What if this? She's been there for a few days. What if she befriends somebody who works there, for example, and they get into some sort of hide and go seek game? Because the thing that struck me when she was in the elevator was it looked like she was hiding. Like she would go into the corner and then she'd peek out and then she'd hide in the other corner. And then, you know, does she get onto, you know, does this person get her on the roof? Let's go play on the roof. They get onto the roof. And then is she thinking like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to find, like, do you know what I mean? Like, was it some innocent game with somebody that didn't have ill intention towards her that then went wrong? This person freaks out. Do you know what I mean? And perhaps she didn't panic. She, she falls into the water. The person's looking over and goes, holy shit. I can't get to you. I'll go get something to help you. And she's like, okay, cool. And she's just like, oh, he'll come back or she'll come back. And then the person just doesn't come back. Is that possible? You know what I mean? Like something that's in the middle where it's like, was there someone else involved? Yes. Was it an accident? Yes. I just think it may live in that world. It could also be if they're going with this theory, maybe they're doing some sort of game and it's she found a place to hide and they were just like, wow. I have no idea. Couldn't find her anywhere. And then like the next day or two, they leave. And then who knows? And then they come out. Maybe they find out about it. Maybe they live somewhere where they never really heard about the case. Who knows? But if they come across it and then it's like, oh, my God, I was there. And then they feel responsible. They're probably not going to come forward. 
Yeah. But who knows? They might just not know what happened. Because the amount of people that went in and out of that hotel in the time that she was missing. Like, yeah. who knows? So all the people, anybody who could have been related to it that weren't hotel employees could have easily left town without them having a clue who they were. Absolutely. Well, listen, what a wild ride this has been. <laughs> I think I can yeah. speak for everybody listening when I say it. Uh, we've really, we've really taken everybody on a, on a, just a journey. Yeah. A journey uh, to, to somewhere and back. I don't know. Christy Oxborough, thank you so much. Thank you for your work as always. It's always a pleasure. And thank you for indulging me, letting me talk about uh, Richard Ramirez and also letting me get my crackpot theory out there. Uh, but I do feel like I redeemed myself because I think I came up with something at the end there that does feel plausible. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. And I have to say thank you for your research. Hey. I think you knocked it out of the park. And uh, I love how excited you were. You came alive. You've been so excited all week talking about this. I and have. I could not be happier to just like step aside and give you the stage. Listen. You know? I don't need I'm to not be. Ro- I'm not Ronald McDonald. I'm not going <laughs> to force it. Listen, I don't need to be here long. Uh, I, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. That's what I got to say. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go right now. We're going to record a bonus episode for our Patreon. That's going to be a last call episode. So if you haven't checked us out on Patreon yet, you can go to patreon.com slash Cocktails and see what we have to offer over there. A uh, whole lot of fun, a lot of bonuses. Very exciting. And if you haven't followed us on the social medias, check us out. True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram and Facebook, at Not Detectives on Twitter. And next week, ep- next week's episode is very exciting. I'm very excited about this one. We've got a little case with a little lady that you all know from a little documentary called Tiger King. That's right. We're going to talk about Carol Baskin and, of course, the disappearance of her second husband, Don Lewis. So you're not going to want to miss that. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, people. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, Oscar, Rachel, do you like Disney movies? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen all of them? Yeah, we saw all the Disney animated movies. And we saw all the Pixar animated movies, too. How about the DCOMs? What? The Disney Channel original movies. You should listen to our podcast, Inside the Disney Vault, because we are watching all of them in chronological order. Yeah, and we do fun segments, like we cast each other. That's right, and my favorite segment, Zaddy Watch, where we rank every single DCOM daddy. Ooh, you can listen to all this fun stuff on our podcast, Inside the Disney Vault on Campfire Media, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, guys, let's get back in the vault. It's cold out here. Campfire.